And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. Welcome to the, this edition of the Hagman Report. Got a great show for you lined up. I'm Doug Hagman, together with Joe Hagman, something I like to call America's premier father-son investigative reporting team, uh, coming at you from our studios in northwest Pennsylvania. Uh, number of, uh, can you hear me? Cord. Oh, oh yeah, it's hanging down, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Alright, for those of you just, uh, oh there it is, right there. Yeah, for those of you listening and not knowing what, uh, what that was about, that was just about a wardrobe wardrobe malfunction. Uh, think Janet Jackson. <laughs> no, no, just kidding. Uh, thanks for that. Thanks for that. Yeah, I, I don't have the. It, it's. I, it was just moments before I realized that that the um, microphone was not connected properly, and uh, they it set forth this uh, just a chain of events that uh, created this havoc and chaos in the studio. But that's all right. We did some in studio interviews. Today. Yes, we did. And, uh, it was a lot of fun. So some things got moved around and, uh, from microphones to cameras. So we had to kind of reset back up. People but, were touching my buttons. Yeah, people were. Somebody touched Eric, I don't know if that came through on air, but okay. Um, but we had, uh, uh, the honeybee in here and, uh, it was a, a lot of fun. We did an interview. They're working on a, on a, on a project and, um, we did that today. I know you yep. did. The yep. Keith Hansen show this morning. Yeah, in fact, I missed my Campbell? usual show. I, in fact, I did not do my nine nine o'clock show this morning. So, if anyone's looking for it, it's not there. So, sorry. Go ahead. No, did you do Pat Campbell this morning? No, I didn't. I just did Keith Hansen from nine to ten, um, or nine fifteen to ten, roughly, and then. There were some other issues that I had to take care of that, uh, or it really comes with the hazards of this business. Truth telling in this, you see, when you tell the truth, what happens is uh, people, people will come after you. And that's okay. Enjoy the flack. Enjoy the flack because you know you're over the target. And speaking of people who are over the target, Laura Loomer, if you haven't been following her, you know, it's, it's a shame how quickly the, um, the Las Vegas shooting seems to, the interest in the facts behind the Las Vegas shooting with many seems to have just uh, fallen by the wayside. Not so for Laura Loomer, our our guest coming, our guest right now, who uh, is actually boots on the ground in Las Vegas, uh, doing what journalists should do, uh, and that is searching for the facts. With that, Laura Loomer, welcome to the Hagman Report. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'll tell you what, it's great to have you. Now, Laura's got a, just an impressive resume. You were with Project Veritas, undercover with Project Veritas for, uh, some time, and you've got, uh, you've got a lot of experience in the field. Is that right? Yeah, I worked for Project Veritas for about three years or so, and then I left and I joined the Rebel, and I was with the Rebel for a couple months, and then I just decided to, uh, go independent. That's good. And it's fantastic. Now, I know you can't see us, but, we, but, uh, we can see you and you look great and you sound great. Thank you. Um, now, uh, I'll tell you, this is such a, an unbelievable subject. I, I, you came on our radar 
a while ago, but specifically in this particular case, mm-hmm. when you cause the, when you single-handedly, I believe this to be the case, single-handedly cause the uh, sheriff's department and the FBI to change the timeline. That's when, and that's when all hell broke loose in terms of um, how they, they were treating you. In my view, anyway, and correct me right. if I'm wrong, but um, you held them to account, and of course they had to admit that they were they were wrong or they misstated, not telling the truth, whatever it might be. And then, of course, from there, uh, the fun began. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so looking at this, you know, I kind of want to, we, Joe and I, kind of want to let you have the floor here. Uh, we have a pretty wide audience, pretty vast audience. Uh, right now, I think 40, 41 countries are, are listening, uh, at least uh, members they're in, and we're on Global Star yeah. Radio Network, and uh, we've got... Uh, We've got a number of others on the different venues. But now having said that, where do you want to start uh, with respect to uh, uh, what's what you've done, what you've uncovered in Las Vegas? Well, the thing I really want to emphasize is that I'm not bankrolled by the mainstream media, right? I don't get a big paycheck from George Soros or MSNBC or CNN or Fox News, right? I began my investigation in New York and... I was just working independently, right? And it just goes to show you the evolution of citizen journalism and the impact that everyday Americans are just citizen reporters who aren't necessarily employed by the mainstream media, um, how big of an impact they can have on a news cycle or an investigation. Um, and that's what really inspired me as well to come out to Las Vegas is because I was breaking all of these stories, getting all these scoops, um, causing... Um, a lot of controversy and shaking things up for the FBI and the LVMPD, but I was all the way in New York. So I thought, wow, I could be so much more effective if I actually come to Las Vegas and report here on the ground. And I hope that my work and uh, just kind of like what I do, I use a cell phone and my laptop and that's pretty much it. Like I don't have a lot of, you know, high-tech fancy equipment or a production team that follows me around. I want everyday Americans to know that they too can do this. Absolutely. And uh, you've been doing such a fantastic job, Laura. I want to ask you this. Since you've gotten to Las Vegas, we know that, uh, as my dad just said, you you introduced evidence that changed the timeline of, of Paddock, yeah. the shooter, stay at the hotel. How were you treated differently by law enforcement and other members of the press after you made that discovery and uh, went to the press conference and asked the sheriff about it? So when I went to the press conference, uh, I was there um, with another independent journalist by the name of Mike Toast, who was uh, on the ground um, kind of assisting me. And we were shunned. The mainstream media, they were laughing at us. Even the local reporters, they were kind of giggling when they saw us walk into the press room because people knew who I was, right? People knew who I was before I went into the press conference because my reporting was getting international coverage. And uh, they just kind of disrespected us and didn't really take us seriously. And then when I asked the question, obviously Sheriff Joe Lombardo became very agitated and tried to shout me down and tell me that I needed some decorum, right, for Mm -hmm. for asking a question, which is what you're supposed to do at a press conference. You're supposed to ask questions. And for him to try and make, make it seem like I was disrespectful or out of line because I asked a question, it's just absurd to me. Because if you've ever been to any presser, whether it be a White House presser or any type of press conference, if you want to get your question in, you have to be assertive. And that's what I was. I was very assertive. Yeah, so, you were. He tried to imply that your question, like, 
He tried to imply that everybody basically took a number and and you went ahead of your number. Yeah, and that's not and that's not true because I waited and the person whose question he was answering, they were done. It was it was right after they finished and I knew they were done and then I inserted my question. So you have to be very quick. Yeah. And I had yeah. attempted to ask questions multiple times before I asked that question and I didn't get it in because other people were just quicker. And so you got to be fast and I'm not apologizing. And to be Quite frank, even if I were to have interrupted or crashed his press conference, I wouldn't apologize because I came to the press conference with facts. I exposed an inconsistency and a lie within the timeline, and I forced the narrative to change on live television. And there's nothing to be apologetic for, right? Exactly. And I loved that. I loved your your uh, your lack of perceived decorum, at least on their part. But I love the fact that you. Uh, got in their faces and said, you know, well, what's the deal? So, um, yeah. that, that's wonderful. Now, I know that your latest, uh, your latest question is about the, uh, uh, legal status of, uh, Jesus Campos. But before we go right. there, can, can we back up a little bit? Laura, what do we know for sure? I mean, th- this is one of the most incredulous invest. I've been an investigator for 30 we years. don't know anything. Yeah. We don't know anything. Okay. So, so I guess, okay, so we know that a lot of people were shot and killed, and we know right. that. And we know that um, it was there was a mass casual event on, on the 1st of October. But right. we, we don't even know if Stephen Paddock was the shooter. We don't know. Exactly. That's my point. We don't know anything. Yeah. The only thing that we know is that 58 people were killed. We don't even know really how a lot of these people died. I mean, I've I've heard that some of the people died from being trampled, from panicking, um, and other injuries sustained. um just trying to escape a mass shooting. But we're not getting any autopsy reports. We're not seeing the different type of uh, wounds, the trajectory that would really help establish whether or not there were multiple shooters, right? We're not getting an analysis of the type of wounds, whether they were shot up close or from far away. You'd really be able to tell how things went down that night. And so right now, the only thing that we know is that 58 people died and that supposedly a man by the name of Stephen Paddock had a bunch of guns in the 30 sec on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay, and they're saying that he's the shooter. But we don't really have any evidence besides the pictures of his dead body in a room that he really is the shooter because they're not releasing surveillance footage. They're not releasing um, information that would really prove to the public that okay, this guy acted alone. Laura, I want to ask you this: one of the the latest developments in the case re- released either yesterday or the day before was the fact that uh, Stephen Paddock had a computer that apparently was missing a hard drive. Do we know if that computer was in the hotel room in his house? <laughs> Has, did the information of where the computer was uh, been released? It's just so funny to me because, first of all, the police said, okay, we've confiscated his laptop, right? We, we've confiscated the electronics. We're going to his house. We're looking at his computers. We're analyzing things. And then they say, oh, we, we don't know. I mean, there's no digital footprint. There's nothing on his laptop that suggests that he was involved with ISIS or, or whatever. And now they're telling us nearly a month later that the laptop that was found inside the, the hotel room was missing its hard drive. I mean, don't you think that that is motive, right? Yeah. Well, That's motive. I mean, if somebody has a hard drive and it's missing – and there were multiple shooters, and someone, put, you know, took took the hard drive. And that's not an easy thing to do, to take a hard drive out of a modern-day laptop. I mean, you have to kind of disassemble things. Right. So why would you take a hard drive unless you wanted to hide or make sure that no one ever saw what was on that hard drive? And who, who uses uh, a laptop without a hard drive? 
Can that even is that even possible? Is that even possible? I don't know. I'm not a technical girl. I mean, this isn't a question for me, right? This is wow. a question for those for those for those uh, very uh, very intelligent investigators on the ground, right? That our taxpayers are paying for. So they're not providing us with answers. And look, the same day that this guy's hard drive was was announced as as being missing, the brother gets charged with uh, possession of child porn. I mean, sorry, I'm just not buying it. I'm not saying that his brother is innocent or, or that his brother is guilty of being like a sexual offender, but it's just, those are two facts that are connected with each other. Like finding child porn on someone's laptop and then having a hard drive go missing. It's just, it sounds like a really good way to make sure that nobody would ever talk to anybody or be seen in public ever again. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I don't want to sound conspiratorial, but if you really want to commit character assassination or make sure that somebody, like a grown adult, is kept away from the media and not able to talk to anyone, and they're totally ostracized even by like the worst criminals ever, you're going to accuse them or charge them with uh, child pornography or or sex crimes against children. That's a good point. No, no, that brother was in an assisted living center. I'm not even sure what that means. I mean, I know what it means. I think it's like a, a, a no, facility sure. that has nurses available, but it's not but what's per se the, a nursing what's the deal home. It's like, an, it's like apartments inside of a big building where there is wanna, assistance. What? So what? We don't know anything about Stephen Paddock or his laptop or what's on his laptop, but they're, they're telling us that the brother who's in some retirement assisted living center is getting charged with child child pornography. Yeah. I mean, why are they even looking into the brother and his, his habits, whether he's using child porn or not? Why don't we get any answers like this about Stephen Paddock? Good I want to know if Stephen I want to know if Stephen Paddock likes child porn. Right? I want to know what was on Stephen Paddock's laptop. I don't care what's on his brother's laptop. Right? I mean, exactly. if he really is a sexual offender, that's great. Get another one off the streets. It sounds like the whole family is involved in crime and degeneracy. But, but I want to know what was on Stephen Paddock's laptop. Exactly, as as we all do. Um, take us where you you want to go. What you want the public, the fo- your followers, and and those who have perhaps never even heard of you, which I can't believe. By the way, you can follow Laura Loomer at Laura Loomer on Twitter. But uh, where where do you? Um, I, I mean, there's so much you've done, and we thank you for it. Uh, Joe and I thank you for it. Our listeners thank you for it. Viewers thank you for it. Um, working anyway. Addressing any subjects you want to, uh, what would you like people to know? Because I, I you walk. By the way, you walked the grounds. What was it last night or early this morning? In yeah, last night. That's last it. Night. Not a little dark, but um, I was in the area, and right before I, um, I was having dinner with a, um, a source, and I thought, well, I have 45 minutes or so, I might as well head over uh, to the place of the attack. And I noticed that the barricades had been taken down since the last week I was here. And so I walked inside and I was looking to see if there were bullet holes in the ground or if there was still blood or just any evidence, right, of a shooting taking place. And there were no bullet holes. I couldn't find any bullet holes. They've obviously cleaned things up. It looked as if the ground had been repaved. Yep, they painted Um, it. It looks like it was paved over with a really big construction truck to make sure that, like, everything was an even surface, right? And... I just kind of wanted to show people what it looked like and ask questions. I saw some homeless people who were there who said that they were sleeping behind the bushes the night of the shooting. And it's just weird. It's just really weird how supposedly, you know, 
what thousands of rounds of ammo were were shot, and there's no there's no trace of bullets or holes anywhere. Yeah, it it, it is very strange, Laura. I want to ask you this. I want to go back to the to the the, the mainstream media, the press conferences you were a part of. Uh, I saw a huge problem with the lack of questions that the uh, the mainstream media was asking about this case. I don't believe they were asking any relevant questions. I don't believe right. they were asking any questions that were going to lead anywhere. Was there anything going on behind the scenes? Were they were the reporters talking to each other? It was. It almost seemed to me like an order no. was given from the top down, not to. An order was given. It was given. You're right. You're absolutely correct about that. The 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 media here in Las Vegas, they've been told. At least I've been, I've had confirmation from at least an individual who works at one of the major cable stations here in Las Vegas that they are not to criticize Sheriff Lombardo or MGM, Mandalay Bay, right? Because one, um, they don't want to lose source access to the LVMPD and Sheriff Joe Lombardo. And then they also don't want to lose advertising from the casinos. What people don't understand is that the casinos in Las Vegas support the entire economy. Nothing in Las Vegas survives without without the economy and, like, the income that is generated by the casinos. And when you have a really big casino conglomerate like MGM that has so many ties to law enforcement and um, they just kind of wedge themselves into every aspect of society here in Las Vegas, you're, you're going to have this culture of intimidation and, like, self-censorship um, within these newsrooms because reporters are not going to want to lose their chances of a promotion or or harm the financial future of the news station. And they've admitted this. So it's very concerning. And that's why I think that more people need to support independent journalists like myself and, you know, other people who have been investigating this because we don't have – we may have an agenda. Like, I may be conservative, right? But my, my reporting is not influenced on – or by how somebody is paying me because I'm not getting paid by some, you know, mainstream media organization that's saying, oh, you can't criticize the Clintons. You can't criticize the Democrats. You can't criticize the casino because we're not going to get paid. I'm totally unfiltered and I say whatever I want. I mean, that's one of the main reasons why I resigned from my previous job was because I wanted to report on Hillary Clinton and I was told I couldn't, right? So I want to say what I want to say and I'm going to do what I want to do. And no one's going to tell me what I can and can't say. Absolutely. Do you I, think- I love it, by the way. And, and if I can just jump in here, just you can ask your question. Just support Laura Loomer. Go to her, her uh, uh, Twitter feed, write the, the pin tweet there. It's got a link to how you can support her and her efforts. Go ahead. And also on Hagman Report, the show right page for today, there right. her, a link to her PayPal is right there uh, on the, on the yeah. write-up. I want to ask you this. We obviously know there's a cover-up going on. Is it separate? Between is MGM doing their own cover up and the FBI law enforcement doing their own cover up, or is this a, well, a coordination working together? It's really funny because now that the lawsuits are starting to to flow in and people are starting to sue and realize that they have the potential to make millions of dollars out of like lawsuit settlements with MGM, you see a tension between the LVMPD and MGM. So MGM released a statement last week when I was out here, and they had said. Oh well, we we don't think that the LVMPD timeline is correct mm-hmm. because they they realize that this false information that's been given to the public and this constant um, you know change with the timeline and all the details and the facts of the key witness and all these things that are popping up, they're going to have serious uh, liability when people sue them, and they they realize that. I mean, there's no way they're going to win a lawsuit. So yeah. 
Yeah. I think that it's now like a scramble to see how much of their own like assets they can protect because, I mean, God, it's gonna. Well, and that's the thing. A lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, maybe even billions. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but just with all of the inconsistencies and the fact that they created a gun-free zone and they could possibly be hiring like illegal aliens as security guards and. Yeah, that's something you found out too. By the way, that that negligence or the negligence lawsuits potential there uh, to me is sickening. But the, the, yeah. the, one of the latest things. Uh, uh, you, you find, I mean, we don't, uh, Jesus Campos, the fact that he zipped off to Mexico, um, no license. Holy cow. Security guard. Yeah, that, and, and, but, but you, you first, you were the first person to, to show that, hey, there's no record of Jesus Campos, um, as a security guard. And, and I know the licensing right. statute. I, I know the licensing statutes for uh, PIs and, and, uh, uh, security guards. We, you have to be licensed. We, you yeah. have to be licensed. And if you're right. in the state of Nevada, if you are working in a casino and you're doing security in a casino, you have to have a sheriff's card. And right. So I want to know, did, did Jesus Campos, who's only been working for, for, uh, for Mandalay Bay for three months since, since June or whatever, did he, does he have a sheriff's card? Did Sheriff Joe Lombardo sign off on a sheriff's card for a guy who's starting to look like an illegal alien? Or does he not have a sheriff's card, right? Does he not have a sheriff's card? since he doesn't also have uh, the proper registration or credentials to be a security guard. I mean, that's not a conspiracy. This isn't me just going after Jesus Campos to be a bully. This is a factual statement. Jesus Campos does not have credentials to be a security guard. You can look this up. There's a database online. He's not even listed. He's been scrubbed. I broke this exclusively. He's been scrubbed from the MGM official employee database called uh, Workday. Wow. Okay. So I just, I really want to know, is this why they're hiding him? And it seems to be very suspicious to me, um, given the fact that he's not credentialed, he's only been there for three months, and then just days after the shooting, when he's a key witness to the worst mass shooting in U.S. history, and they still don't know who's involved, they're letting this guy drive to Mexico with a bullet wound in his legs? I mean, suppose, this is everything that they're telling us. I mean, who knows? Maybe this guy wasn't even shot, Right. I mean, who is Jesus Campos? We're really just going off of everything that law enforcement and the FBI are telling us, but I don't trust them. I mean, you shouldn't trust them. And I'm not anti-police by any means whatsoever, but I just don't know what to believe anymore. I mean, how do I even know this guy really exists? How do I really know that that uh, a security guard was shot inside Mandalay Bay? How do, how do we know these are factual statements when the other statements that have been presented as fact to us have turned out to be lies. Yeah, you're right. And you have uh, sources, sources, and I've talked to uh, many employees. What, what's their, uh, if you, if you can share uh, any, she's talked any about insight, yeah, yeah, with anybody well, you've talked yeah, to, what's so, their consensus? Well, I've spoken to a lot of people um, inside. Like a lot of my sources are just MGM employees or Mandalay Bay employees, right? And that's how I was able to obtain a lot of this information that I've obtained. But some of them are telling me, yeah, like Jesus Campos, I don't know him personally, but other people do. And, um, you know, just, oh, he hasn't really been working here that long. And which is true. That's all backed up. Sure. And then I just started asking a couple other security guards who I've been in contact with and people who work for MGM properties. Yeah. So what is the culture at MGM? 
what is what is the training like? Do you guys get a lot of training? Um, have you noticed that they are really lax with their E-Verify program? Do you do you know anyone who's illegal working here? And I kid you not, I have I have multiple people in security, but one individual in particular said some of my coworkers have admitted to me that they are illegal aliens. In security? In security at MGM at an MGM property, yes. At, at, this is Mandalay. I'm just, I'll just say Mandalay. Oh, my yes. word. Okay, the implications they, are staggering. They, okay. they said, I, I don't want to, obviously I'm not going to reveal who my sources, but they have said, yeah, I mean, they're nice They're nice people. Like, we've talked to them before. I, I've had conversations with them. But my source and other individuals as well and other departments have told me, yes, like, my coworkers have told me that they're illegal, some of them, so... That's incredible. And the implications, again, I, I cannot stress enough in that, especially in exactly. that gaming industry. Exactly. Um, it, and it was backed up today as well. I, sorry to interrupt you, but no. there was a picture. Um, they gave me this information, and then when I started talking to some other employees about it as well, they said, oh, let me let me take this picture for you. I have this picture. Let me send it to you. It's in the workroom um, at Mandalay. Let me go take a picture for you. And they sent me this picture, and I kid you not, it's a flyer. <laughs> From the from the union in which MGM employees belong to, it's like some culinary union that is um, that belongs to MGM, right? And they're literally advertising um, free classes to illegal aliens inside the employee workroom in MGM properties that say what to do if ICE knocks at your door. They're trying to teach illegal aliens how to avoid being deported. And then they also, you can go on my Twitter and look at this, and at the bottom it says lawyers will be in attendance for Q&A. Who is paying for this? Who is paying for, for, for illegal aliens to attend seminars on MGM's dime? I'm assuming it's on MGM's dime to well, learn Laura, how to avoid deportation. Laura, the, the, uh, the owner of MGM, it was either the owner or the CEO a few months the ago, CEO, encouraged people to donate to CARE, and other uh, left-leaning yeah. organizations. So it wasn't even a few months ago. It was literally one day up until the shooting. The deadline oh, wow. ended September 30th. Wow, I didn't. I didn't even know this that. up. Yeah, he was. He was. He was using shareholder money and matching funds from from uh, employees who wanted to donate to groups like Care, which is a terrorist organization, right? SBLC, mm-hmm. uh, which goes after right wingers all the time, and the FBI actually had to cut its ties with SPLC because they were involved in like aiding uh, domestic terrorists, right? Um, yeah. The Chinese government, like they're literally supporting communists. They're donating their money to Islamic terrorists, domestic uh, radical Soros-funded terrorists, and uh, the Chinese government. I mean, it really makes you wonder. Yeah, it, it does. Wow. Uh, getting back to the actual investigation, are there any more press conferences scheduled? Do we know if there's going to be a disclosure of information? The, they canceled all the press conferences. They said no more. No more press conferences. Because? Like last week, Sheriff Lombardo, they said no more press why? conferences. Why? Why? Why do you think? Because they don't want people asking questions. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean. They don't want Laura Loomer. They don't want me coming into their press conference and dropping truth bombs on them and embarrassing them on live television because they realize their fake narrative and their cover-up is unraveling gotcha. in front of the entire country. I, 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 I guess they couldn't have a, they could, they couldn't say we're going to have a press conference except for Laura Loomer in. Oh, they did try that. <laughs> So, well, well, yeah. But. but it's not just me. Like, it's getting to a point where people who are literally paid to turn turn an eye are saying, okay, like, I can't even look away because it's so obvious that this is a cover-up. 
Yeah, even Tucker Carlson did a, a ten-minute segment yesterday yeah. on Fox News, exposing and asking these uh, questions. Do we know if there's going to be a disclosure of information, like you said, the autopsy reports, the types of bullets that were used, or how many so. people were injured, how and how they were? In- no, we're no? just going to. It's, it's no. as, you, as you think, as you've, you've ever seen before. And, and the I'll, coroner's office is on lockdown. I mean, Jason yeah. Goodman from uh, I don't know if you're know, if you're familiar with Jason Goodman yeah. from Crowds Versus the Truth, but uh, we are working together out here for a couple days when he was here last week and he went to the coroner's office and they're on lockdown. They have armed guards out front mm-hmm. and even the woman who he interviewed who works there said, yeah, I've never seen this before. They've never ever had us on lockdown or, you know, we're not allowed to answer questions from the media. So, look, that that's your evidence. If you want to know whether there's multiple shooters or whether people were shot on the ground or how people died, you'll get the autopsy reports and you'll see, okay, this person had a bullet hole here, 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 wherever in the head and there's different types of bullets and wounds that look like they were shot up close or far away. I mean, there's no denying autopsy results. That's right. And I, I want to point out our guest is Laura Loomer. Follow her on Twitter, at Laura Loomer. One thing that I really liked uh, that she posted, nothing to do with this uh, specifically this investigation. Invest in people who invest in you. Uh, keep that in mind as you're uh, taking information from Laura Loomer uh, as she's busy on the ground in Las Vegas. And keep that in mind for all citizen journalists. Okay. Um, a couple yeah, it's important. It's yeah. important. Invest in, when, in terms of journalism, right? And I'm not even talking about myself. Whether you like me and my work or you like other independent journalists, Invest in people who invest in you, okay? I am invested in the American people. I'm invested in finding out the truth. The people who work for the mainstream media, while there are a few really good people who work for them, like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, just to name a few, Mm -hmm. most of the people in the mainstream media do not have you in their best in you know, in in their best interest. They they don't care. They're not invested in telling you the truth because you aren't paying their bills, right? They're getting paid by CEOs who have big time agendas. Uh, Laura, I want to ask you a question. Yesterday, you you released a video, and uh, I saw you get a lot of criticism, which I I, I didn't quite understand. It was a couple of days ago, well, maybe two days ago, and you got some criticism because mm-hmm. uh, uh, the video was short and it looked like a video of a video. But what it, right. it looked like is somebody laying on the ground inside the Mandalay Bay and uh, police officers with their Talk. guns out, yeah. uh, right. you know, walking around. Do you, do you yeah. have any more uh, inside info or, or background info or context for that video? Look, I obtained this video. There was an individual who was working at Mandalay Bay, and they saw a body when police officers started walking towards towards them and asking people to leave. They were directing people to go to the Michael Jackson Theater. You could hear this all in the police scanner, right? They were telling people, okay, get them to go to the Michael Jackson Theater. And this individual filmed the video because they saw a body and they wanted to get it on camera, and they were scared because they saw police officers coming towards them with guns. And they were t- they were saying, like, oh, put your cameras away, like, put your stuff away. And they didn't even want to come forward and give this video, right? So why why are people going crazy and saying, oh, that's, that's, not, that's not a body, or oh, this video is edited? Someone was scared. They were scared for their life, and they didn't know what to do. They just wanted to film a body on camera because they saw a body on the floor. And I'm not, I'm not saying, okay, well, this, this proves that there's multiple shooters. This, this changes us, just changes that. I'm just saying, if there was a body on the floor of the casino, okay, and there's cameras everywhere, a, a camera above, to the mm-hmm. side, right behind, which I took pictures of, 
why aren't we getting the whole story about why there was a body on the floor of the casino? Did, did other people die? And I think people are focusing too much on the body instead of the end of the video, in which there's a statement from the representative at the LVMPD. And I asked them, I said, with another journalist as well, did anybody else die inside Mandalay Bay the night of the shooting besides Stephen Paddock? And their wording was very weird. They said there was no officer involved shooting. That's not my question. Hmm. My question is, did somebody else die inside Mandalay Bay besides Stephen Paddock? And notice yeah. the wording. I show that there's a there's a body on the floor. It's very clear that it's a body. You can see the two legs and the white sheet. Yep. And then their statement is there was no officer involved shooting. Yeah, and you, you didn't get a chance. To, I mean, to, there's no follow up uh, to, to uh, uh, re-ask that question. It was it's pretty abrupt. I wanted to release that video actually a week ago, but they canceled the press conferences, and I was planning on you know bringing it and asking them up front. But it, I just think it's very weird that they're using the wording "no officer involved shooting" when yeah. that's not my question. I asked you, did someone die on the floor? And it's really clear it's a body. I mean, people can people can say whatever they want. They could say the video is edited, um, but I'm I'm just presenting you with a, a video. I didn't pay anybody for this video. I didn't get paid for this video. I just think that it's of the public public's interest to know that a body was covered on the floor inside Mandalay Bay the night of the shooting. Got it. Yeah, you also didn't yeah. take the video, and it is obvious from whoever did that they were um, frightened. Absolutely. Even being seen videotaping. Uh, exactly. They weren't even holding it up. They were holding it to the side. And they only filmed for 10 seconds. I mean, mm-hmm. they were very scared, obviously. Okay. Uh, now, now, you were outside uh, last night and uh, approached by a police officer who told you to, to, to move along, basically. Um, what did they do to that parking lot? As you said, coming earlier, they, they kind of... Um, Graded that, graded over that parking lot, yeah. and then what other changes have they made? Have they have they altered any other? Areas? I don't know. It it looks the other the VIP area and the stage area is still off limits, but the parking lot, which had been off limits too, that was finally open. So it okay. it really does appear that there was some type of truck that came in and kind of uh, resurfaced the area um, yeah. or did some type of collection of evidence and just kind of covered things up. But, um, I mean, look, these these police officers have some nerve. You see the way that guy treated me on yeah. camera yesterday. Yeah. I mean, I was simply asking him, hey, did you guys go over this area with a truck? Um, when do you plan on opening it up? Or um, is that blood over there? Are those blood piles? Or what, what are these big uh, piles of fluid and stains? And he just kind of laughs and gets you know, really nasty with me, but they're going to have a serious issue on their hand. The LVMPD, Sheriff Joe Lombardo, like he thinks he's going to win re-election, but no no amount of money in the world is going to re-elect him if the people aren't going to vote for him. And I don't understand how any sane individual who lives in Las Vegas would even want to su- continue supporting the LVMPD or Sheriff Joe Lombardo after they've been lied to and disrespected by the people they're supposed to trust the most. Exactly. Now I, I know we've kept you longer than than you agreed to. We okay. we uh, forgoed the uh, bottom of the hour network break. Um, right. uh, and uh, thank you for your time. How can we? Uh, how can? First of all, are we are we ever going to know the truth? Do you think? And, and the second part of that question is, what can we best do to assist you in in finding out the truth? 
I mean, who knows? I'm doing my best, right? I'm trying to find out the truth, but I, I don't know if we're ever going to find find out the truth. I mean, look, I, I find that there's a lot of similarities between the JFK assassination and the way things played out there and the characters involved and then this own Las Vegas investigation. And I find it to be so strange, right? You have the JFK files that are being released, and I can't help but draw so many similarities between Lee Harvey Oswald and Stephen Paddock and, you know, just... Yeah. Do you follow? I mean, do you get the sense too that that oh, there's much. a lot of similarities here? And um, yeah, when people ask about about whether we're going to know the truth, I, I I say, okay, well, is it going to take us what 54 years to find out, or is the government going to like classify these documents as well? What are what are we going to know? And the perfect way to distract people from finding out the truth about um, what's turned into a really big conspiracy, or you know or mystery is to release information about um, another mystery or a conspiracy that people have been wanting information about. So, You know, you've got good instincts, investigative instincts and journalistic instincts. And I know this calls for speculation, but what, what, what are your instincts telling you what went on, if you even want to go there, uh, or, or the motive for the cover-up, uh, if you want to go there? Um it's up to you. I mean, what, 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 what's your, what are your things? It, it just, it keeps changing. I don't think that ISIS was wrong for claiming responsibility. I think that there definitely is an ISIS angle, whether or not Stephen Paddock was some type of informant and he was, you know, undercover working with ISIS or whether he really was a member of ISIS himself. I do think, I really do believe that there is an ISIS element to this because ISIS does not take responsibility for things they're not responsible for. But now the, the, the question is, how was Stephen Paddock involved with ISIS? Was he, was he really a guy who converted to Islam and joined ISIS or was he working with the government to like, you know, sell guns or traffic children or, um, you know, launder money for ISIS? What, what is his connection? I think that what the government doesn't want us to find out is how Stephen Paddock was tied to ISIS. Interesting. Okay. Were the were the electronics really scrubbed? The data from the the data from the electronics uh, scrubbed from the uh, concert goers and others. Do you know? Yeah, from the confiscated phones. I mean, there phones. were reports. There were reports. There were several people who said that their their devices were scrubbed. I mean, I I I'm not going to say yes or no. It wasn't. I mean, I haven't met anyone yet who's had their device scrubbed, but I do trust. Um, I trust Alex Jones, I trust Paul Joseph Watson, and I, uh, you know, trust their reporting. And if Paul Joseph Watson is reporting that um, individuals had their phones scrubbed, I trust that. I, I believe that Paul Joseph Watson is a very reliable source. Yeah, we got we got two we got two independent, non-related people, two accounts uh, that I know of that that had their phones, their cell phones confiscated, got got them back, and the um, just only the uh, footage right. from that that period was taken was removed, but uh-huh. you know, so, so that's kind of independent verification as well. well um, yeah, go ahead. I want to ask you this: How long are you planning on staying in Las Vegas? Well, I've been here all week. Uh, I'm here till the end of the week. I may come back again. I don't know. I mean, it really depends. I was hoping to come out here and. Um, you know, like speak to individuals and I was hoping that while I was out here maybe they would announce a change in like press conference details but uh, it's hard because they're really making an active effort to cut off all flow of information and so I've just been meeting with people and trying to gather more information but um, I will be going back to New York at the end of this week but I will 
come back, you know, if I, yeah. if I need to come back or if they're, if they decide to open up the floor for more questions and, uh, something drastic happens, I will come back to Las Vegas. Would you urge our listeners to, to, to press the, the pressure, the LVMPD or, or, uh, you yeah, know? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, I'm doing my best. I, I tried pressuring Sheriff Joe on Twitter, and he blocked me. The yeah. same day that I released the my news story about Jesus Campos and his Social Security card number, uh, the sheriff blocked me. So why would you block a member of the press on media unless, one, they were threatening your life, or, two, they were starting to really freak you out with the truth, right? It's not like I'm trolling to be a nasty person. I'm presenting him with facts. Right. And you're asking questions that uh, millions yeah, of Americans... I'm not being a, a troll. I'm being a journalist, an investigative journalist, and he blocked me. Well, you, you've been very generous, generous with your time. Laura, you've got the floor for as much time as you want. Anything that you want to, anything we haven't covered that you want to talk about, that you want to mention, that you want to uh, promote, or, or, you know, it's, it's up to you. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. I mean, like I said, I recently uh, just... I became independent and, uh, I, all of my work is 100% crowdsourced at the moment. And so if you, you know, if you do like my work and, um, if you aren't familiar with some of the other things I've done, um, I do a lot of ambush, uh, guerrilla journalism videos and I confront people like I've confronted the Clintons, Hillary Clinton, Chelsea Clinton at book signing events. And I like holding people accountable and catching them off guard when they're least expecting it, right? Stuff that the mainstream media would never do. So if that's what you like seeing, um, you know, I would encourage you to follow me and check out my work and uh, consider supporting it. But okay. I hope that I can inspire more people to do this type of work because really all you need is a Twitter account, a Facebook, and your cell phone. I mean, I do everything with my cell phone. I don't have a cameraman or fancy equipment. I literally make everything from my cell phone. It's amazing in this day and age. I'll tell you, you're 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 dangerous, but I'm glad. Well, I'm glad you're on our side. That's Thank you. seriously. Uh, we I we, it. we have a lot of respect for for your work, your investigative work Thank product, you. and we really appreciate your tenacity. Um, Thanks. God bless you. Thank you for your gift of time tonight. We really Thank appreciate you. it. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks. That was Laura Loomer uh, reporting from Las Vegas. I, I Joe yeah, Laura Loomer on Twitter. Uh, make sure you follow her. Um, she's got about a hundred thousand followers, and um, yeah, her, it, she's, she's very so. relevant. On oh, absolutely, she's making a difference. And what she said is so important that if you have you know a social media account, if you have a cell phone, and you have uh, uh, the will, you can go and and do the exact same thing. You can go ask questions. You can get involved. You can try to make a difference uh, for the truth. And as we see by her example, um, in this case specifically, Las Vegas. Um, you know, she's been making a huge difference to the point where getting, uh, you know, timelines changed. We know Paddock stated uh, at the Mandalay Bay, um, multiple days before the police said he even checked in that there was, uh, the receipt for the room service for two people ordering food there, not just one. Um, so much. And it is so important, especially in an investigation like this, when everything is being covered up, everything's being censored and nobody's being told the truth. For ha- to have some of that truth be forced out of them because of citizen journalism and to know that anybody can have that same effect with minimal technology um, should inspire a lot of people to be able to, to, to go and do the same. But, you know, it's it's frustrating to to not all further press conferences are canceled. I mean, 
Well, Keith Hansen this morning and I were talking about this, and uh, you know, he he started off by saying, "Well, let's get into some conspir- conspiratorial areas." And by the end of it, it and he did, he, you know, Keith. I mean, he didn't mean right. any, anything negative by it or pejorative by it, but um, it, it was. It, it's it's interesting how and it's interesting how this is shaping up. It, so we, we when we spoke it, because of his law enforcement. Um, interaction and background. I mean, what's the motive? What would be the motive here for the the for silence? The, for the uh, silence of the shooting, not the motive of the attack itself, but the motive for the silence. Is yeah, what you're asking? Because I, I guess, yeah, why it would be one? It have to be one and the same. Because why? I mean, when have we seen um, in terror attacks? I mean, number 9-11, they hate us for our freedom. You know, we're given a, a thousand different motives and reasons why. Um, all of them can, they, that arguments can be made to try to support their facts. Uh, even in the San Bernardino, when the information was reluctant to come out at first, it came out after about 24 hours. Um, you yeah, know, but 24 and, hours, not 24 days. Exactly. So there must be some kind of vested interest with the authorities not to have the motive come out because maybe it compromises them. Maybe, you know, what people are saying that he was some kind of government operative in any capacity from a random Area 51 worker to, you know, a drug smuggler, Barry Seal type. Obviously there is a, a vested interest both. for the, for the federal government not to have want information to come out. Yeah. And, you know, uh, our, it was tremendous to have the honeybee, uh, Melissa Zachariah in and, and, um, Anthony and well, her crew and, and talking about this in the studio. And if you haven't seen that, you got to catch that video or that episode. But no, uh, uh, but, but but wait, wait a second. I'm sorry. The, the, the fact that 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 um, uh, I lost my train of thought. Except to say that we need answers on this, and uh, um, we have to push for the answers. We, we we've got to demand them. Um, I don't know what else what else to say because. Uh, if you are one of the family members that had a deceased or had someone killed in this, wouldn't you really be uh, furious? Be furious. Thank you. I was going to say something else. And then you have to ask the question: Where? Okay. Um, is it? Should do we? Should we expect to see President Trump ask questions? Should we accept or accept expect Jeff Sessions to? I mean, at some point, shouldn't we see some leadership from these people, from the head of the DOJ, from the president of the United States, asking for answers, uh, you know, or giving an, some kind of explanation as to why we're not getting them? At some point, don't yeah. they have to get involved? Well, there's precedent for the Justice Department getting involved in local cases. I mean, when it comes right down to yeah, it, yeah, look at Ferguson. But, but, well, yeah, but this is this really is a murder case. It's just fifty-eight, fifty, yeah, fifty-eight counts of murder. Um, it, this is a murder case, murder investigation. So the authority, in, at least in, in my view, uh, the authority to handle this and to prosecute forward, going forward, would be would, would rest with the local authorities. Um, the invitation for the FBI to come in is by invitation. However, it seems the other way around now. I mean, don't forget jurisdiction. All right, if you're the sheriff in in Vegas, you're you're the boss. No, you know what? 
in Vegas, the coroner is the highest-ranking well, law enforcement officer. In some counties. That's what they said I, in I, the video. I, I the police officer okay. even said yes. That kind of threw me off because I've never heard that before. Yeah, in some counties, it, it's a weird political structure, <laughs> okay, right. because some Coroners, you've got some coroners and then some medical examiners. It goes county by county, state by state. So, okay. I wanted to ask you, does that mean the coroner has power of arrest? Uh, actually, it's via inquest, yes, in oh, certain okay. cases. But, but that aside, the, at the local level, the authorities are, the, the uh, local authorities are, are the most uh, powerful. So, I mean, they've got, they, they take person over the FBI. The FBI can't walk in. They've got to be invited. And, uh, they just can't walk in and take over a case unless it's a, there's some caveats or unless it's a federal case. But, um, and then only on the federal end of it as well. But, so, yeah, does the sheriff want to get reelected? I mean, but the liability aspect, and I go back to this, and I was talking to Keith Hansen about this. Having worked uh, the liability, work work for uh, insurance companies that were attempting to, in, in Fortune 100 companies attempting to protect their their uh, liability or get out of the way of liability uh, suits, negligence suits. Uh, I can see where this would be a motive. However, and, and I can see where the revised timeline. By the way, New York Times did the, a revised timeline. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I could see where that would would help. Uh, with the potential for lawsuits. The New York Times, more that. than the Sheriff's Department, they actually put together the acoustics. A, a, re, yep. a reconstruction. Yes. Uh, uh kind of graph, graphics that take you through, you know, what it was like, what doors were where, what shots came from, you know, what angle. And it, it was much more than the police or the FBI have, have come out with or given. And you know, what really bothers me about the, I mean, we, when you talk about a cover, isn't there standard operating procedures in any type of investigation, whether it's local law enforcement or federal, where they have to release the investigative findings as to, uh, you know, how many bullets were fired, how many people were shot, how many people were injured from gunshots versus other injuries, uh, you know, how many people died, uh, you know, and where their what she said from the no, autopsy report I, doesn't there have to be no the, 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 the simplest release of information I don't I don't think there's any there's no law that compels uh, a law enforcement agency to release that information it's just standard practice and um, it, it's a they're, they're public they, they work with their public service they work the servants they work for the the taxpayers so no no law that requires disclosure but certainly good policy standard policy and standard practices uh so yes and no to answer your question i mean it, it's i i cannot think of a a, a normal case where they wouldn't no uh, so I, i've never heard of anything um i mean just thinking on the other side to the extreme I and mean, it shows like uh the first 48 where they you know show the case from the point of a detective arriving on the crime scene to you know going through the case investigating interviewing witnesses to capturing the suspect interviewing the suspect and uh until they're you know the case is closed right. um i wish we had something like that on this case and this is you know the the worst mass shooting in american history and the media, like I asked yeah. her about the lore about the order given to the yes. media, because it does. It seemed like a blanket order was issued. Don't ask questions, uh, you know. And everything about this, from the Jesus Campos interview on Ellen to the media's lack of uh, uh, of conviction and wanting to get to the truth, 
it stinks. It, it seems like everybody's complicit in this cover-up, and nobody well, cares for the truth. That, that Ellen interview, in my view, that was MGM, um, oh, yeah. uh, Mandalay Bay, uh, management of, of liability and management of, of information, creating a choke point. And, and see, it doesn't take a lot of people to, to, uh, to control, you know, information. Uh, some people say, well, you, you, it couldn't have happened this way because you'd have to control all this, all these people that, no, you just control certain choke points of information and you're able to change a lot as we saw with this. Uh, that's why I don't dismiss the conspiratorial aspect of this. It, 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 like she said, we don't know. I don't even know if it, I, we don't even know if it was Paddock. We don't know. We don't know anything when it comes right down to it except that, um, a lot of people were shot. 58, uh, yeah. died and, uh, they're blaming it on, on Paddock, and of course, uh, Campos is a hero. That's the narrative. That is the narrative. And, and Laura Loomer mentioned the, uh, the release of the CIA K- Kennedy documents. There's some developments on this, and there's some different storylines coming out of this. Uh, on the front of Drudge, there's a headline, Spooks Suppress Select JFK Docs. And that goes to yeah. an article on the Washington Post and New York Times. But there's also a Daily Mail article. Trump orders new JFK cover-up as he puts off releasing some assassination files for six months so spies can black out portions of the paper. Yeah, how's That's that the headline. Uh, that, but, yeah. but basically, the there is a, a law in 1992 that required the president to release all government documents related to the 1963 assassination of the Kennedy uh, of John Kennedy by... Thursday, today, now some loophole is giving the White House uh, an extra week or two weeks. They're going to re- be releasing the 2,800 pages tonight. Right. But the most meaningful Via details... The National Archives, by the way. The most meaningful details will be likely be blacked out and pages to come during the next week. So, uh, I, But I've seen another report that says that Trump is not allowing the intelligence agencies to black out anything and they will still be releasing the documents um, mostly today and then throughout the next week or two. So I'm seeing conflicting reports uh, on this both ways but Trump himself put out a tweet uh, earlier this week saying he will release the JFK files. I wonder if there isn't some infighting going on about this or if there isn't a deep state versus Trump type conflict with the release of these uh, documents because he he was very clear that he would release all the documents. Well, subject any, to additional... But who's, who, whose authority above his is, could say, no, well, you can release these, but you're going to hold off on these until we can go over them again. And, um, something doesn't seem right here. There's over 5 million pages related to this. In total, and, but 3,800 right. coming out to the... Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, 11% have not been released. All right, but but the bottom line is, look, if you think you're going to learn, if if there's going to be a smoking gun in in these documents, you know, good luck with that. It's 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 not it's not going to be there. Um, And meanwhile, today we can't find out diddly on on really on what's going on in Vegas, and and people and don't you find it really interesting that people are okay seem to be okay with that? Most America, how many Americans just say, oh, that's right, there was that shooting in Las Vegas. For crying out loud, get angry or, or get pay, start paying attention and start get uh, get yeah. Moving. I mean, demand demand the information. We're doing it. I mean, we we're even though 
you know, majority of people still are looking for information on Las Vegas, but people, other people are saying, you know, move on. It's, a, it's turning into a distraction. Move on. To what? When, 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 uh, it, it, uh, that, uh, move on and no one died. Okay. Those two statements really piss me off. Yeah. Because we can, com- we, we are able to, to handle multiple investigations at once. Uh, we could have a, a major event like Las Vegas happen every day and we would be able to keep track of them each individually and independently. And until this is cleared up, until we understand what happened and why it happened, we're not going to move on from it. Uh, just like we, nobody should have moved on from 9-11. I'm working a 40 year old, uh, unsolved homicide. Mm-hmm. And you know what? There was, uh, there was a son. It was a father. It was a brother. And I'm not moving on. And you shouldn't move on from this death until you, this was an assault on, on our, our nation, on the people of our nation. And shame on you if you're one to say, well, let's move on. It's just nothing but a distraction. A distraction from what? 58 people were murdered and others injured. Let's get to the bottom. Let's get to the truth. Let's demand the truth. Yeah. I mean, if no information is, is forthcoming by the police in 50 years, if we're still here, people will still be talking about what happened in Las Vegas. We are up against our network break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Amy Knight. Her book, Orders to Kill, it's going to be very interesting. It deals with Putin and the Russia regime, the Putin regime and political murder. Don't go anywhere. Greenovative. Go to HagmanReport.com. Click on the link to Greenovative. What Greenovative is, it's a small company in Florida. They created something called the GMAG Power Cell. It produces electricity by adding salt water to this unit that recharges rechargeable batteries. It's the coolest thing you'll ever see in your life. It's really neat. Really a, a super device. All right, You need just two teaspoons of ordinary table salt, a little water, but a thing, you're charging your rechargeable batteries. Super GMAG chargeable is affordable. It's lightweight, weighs about 8 ounces. It's durable. It's EMP proof. And it's environmentally friendly. Yeah, that it is. It'll provide safe and convenient power for recharging uh, 6 AA batteries off the grid. When other power sources aren't available anywhere, anytime, in any weather, day or night, go to greenovative.com. That's greenovative.com. Folks, in these uncertain times, it just makes sense to have a sustainable backup method for accomplishing one of life's most important tasks, and that's preparing food. This is the way to go. There is nothing better than a Minuteman rocket stove from MinutemanStove.com. We all need a way to cook and a method to process water. I mean, think about it. Think about the many things that could happen to you. Minuteman rocket stove can provide your family or group the perfect solution. It's small, lightweight, wood-burning, and every bit as powerful as a kitchen stove. It's smoke fully self-contained for clean storage and transport. Because it's so efficient, it cuts down on your wood gathering and processing chores to a tenth what would be required if cooking the old-fashioned way over an open fire. So don't rely on gas or fuel stoves. Prepare your family. Prepare for yourself. Order a Minuteman rocket stove today. It's going to make bad times much better. Folks, MinutemanStove.com. MinutemanStove.com. Need I say more? You should have a Minuteman, the survival stove in an M.O.K. 
For investors, timberland has become the symbol of safety. Global tropical timber demand continues to surge as the world's population increases. The need for managed, sustainable timber production forests has never been greater. When stock markets crash, trees keep growing. Direct ownership of fully managed tropical timberland acreage is now available to accredited investors. Prime, valuable hardwood groves close to the beautiful Costa Rican border generate and maintain superior long-term wealth. Consider visiting our forest plantations. Qualified, accredited investors should go to PreciousTimberProfits.com or dial 855-888-6288 for more information. Call 855-888-6288 or visit PreciousTimberProfits.com. This announcement does not constitute either an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offering made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288, PreciousTimberProfits.com. Back to this edition of the Hagman Report. Um, you know, with with all the news with respect to Russia uh, today, we have a very very uh, interesting guest coming up. Her name is Amy Knight. She's written a book called uh, "Orders to Orders to Kill," and it's, it's some historical background about uh, uh, Putin, specifically Putin and uh, the well, dozens of journalists who were. And political opponents as well, who were uh, uh, really taken out by the Putin regime, and it's interesting how we in the West look at Putin. Some, some, uh, uh, you know, put him up on a pedestal. Some lionize him. Some, it's just an amazing reaction and a series of reactions, and especially now with with all of this Russian entanglement and, and such. Uh, so we're going to be talking with Amy Knight shortly. It amazes me, by the way, that uh, I, I, you know, I get. Uh, I could take it a task for uh, using an improper or using a phrase uh, for conveying my anger. Is that really the, the people that that are listening? Uh, when I'm angry, and I say and I say this uh, uh, marginally, you know, uh, somewhat uh, uh, not a cuss word, but just an off color, use off color language. My question is: Is that really? Is that? Is that what really makes you angry? Is that really what um, where you want to focus? And when we talk about fifty-eight dead and no answers, is that really what upsets you? That's my question to you. Uh, and if it is, fair enough. Okay, we know we know your standards are so. But okay, um, the uh, now a couple of things as well. Tucker Carlson last night, and just uh, that was a great clip by Tucker Carlson that you played during your uh, afternoon show. And I think eight minutes of, I think what was that, seven or eight minutes of the, uh, Jesus Campos disappearance and, you know, going to Mexico and coming back. And, uh, that was fun by, by, uh, Tucker Carlson. Yeah. By, and he by asked, Fox. he asked about the, sh- the police behavior. Yep. yep. He asked why basic questions were not being answered. He or his, uh, somebody from his show called the sheriff's department and asked what qualifications you needed to be a security guard at a Las Vegas casino. And they were met with, uh, Jesus Campos as a victim. We're not answering your question. Um, very telling. Yeah. When you can't even get basic information that isn't even, you're not even asking, uh, you know, did this happen? Did that, that happen? You're asking, uh, you know, what qualifications would you need to perform this job? Right. And you're still being told, uh, no. 
By the way, I did miss my morning show. I had to take today off because I was doing interviews uh, with Keith Hansen in uh, in New England. So uh, I just I'll be back tomorrow for those interested. In Nine a.m. Eastern time on the Global Star Radio Network as well as BTR. But with us now is an incredible author, the author of Orders to Kill, Amy Knight. She is perhaps one of the foremost experts on uh, all things Putin, all things. Russia in orders to kill the Putin regime and political murder. That's the name of the book. The KGB scholar, and she is a KGB scholar, ties the many victims together to expose a campaign of political murder during Putin's reign that even includes terrorist attacks, such as, now, now listen to this, the Boston bombing, uh, Boston Marathon bombing. And Russia, shall I say, is no stranger to polit- political murder. And you go back in history, the czars and the Soviets before him. Putin has maintained a grip on power through coercion, through intimidation. I, I think many people in the West don't really understand um, that fact. And again, they like to put him up on the pedestal, and, and they don't see the um, they don't see what uh, Amy Knight has uncovered. And I think that's that's really important. So uh, we're going to have a discussion about uh, about really what the Putin regime is really like, about the smoking guns, even quite literally, and uh, Putin and such uh, with Amy Knight. She's a respected scholar, again, the author of this book, which we are so thankful to have. Yeah, uh, it's, it's so interesting. Read, Orders to Kill. Amy Knight, Miss Knight, welcome to uh, the Hagman Report. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for your gift of time, and we really appreciate it. This was a fascinating book. I, I, um, I just I, I have to start out by by prefacing my first question with the fact that I I, I was intrigued by the the Soviet Russia uh, before the, the fall, and intrigued by their their infiltration the communist infiltration into the United States, among other things. So that set the stage for this book. And when I read this book, I was amazed at what you uncovered and what you found. Uh, what would people be surprised? And this is kind of an off-script off question, but what would, people, what would be the one thing people would be amazed to find out that, that you've uncovered in your book here? If, if I could start off with that question. Well, um, I should say that, that basically I provide quite a bit of circumstantial evidence pointing to the fact that uh, several of the murders of Putin's critics, journalists, politicians, uh, these murders can be tied to the Kremlin. Now, I say very clearly in my book that there is no smoking gun because Mr. Putin and his um, allies in the Kremlin would not be so stupid as to leave that kind of a trace. But I think if you read my book, you'll see by the numerous cases that I discuss that, in fact, there is so much circumstantial evidence that it's really, really hard not to conclude the complicity of the Kremlin. You you, you make a, an extremely good case. Um, the, you know, circumstantial evidence, in my view, is perhaps the most difficult evidence to manufacture. And I think, in, in totality, as I went through your book, uh, it was it was pretty clear. You know, in terms of the enemies, their actions, and then their their ultimate fate. There's some common 
common ground they, sh- they share. Uh, so, so how many reporters, how many political opponents since Putin has, since Putin assumed uh, his, his reign of power, do you think? Well- you know, people ask me that all the time, and, and it's very difficult to put a number on that because um, it, it's important to note that even in the 90s under Yeltsin, there was a lot of violence, uh, mafia-related violence, local uh, politicians and journalists and so on and so forth. So... Um, it, there, there were, there have been a lot of murders, but the number that can actually, that I feel probably indicate that they were ordered by the Kremlin, um, are, you know, maybe a dozen or so, because, and these are the most important people, and I talk about them in my book. You've probably heard of Alexander Litvinenko. Oh, yeah. He, he was the former uh, KGB FSB officer who defected from Russia in 2000. And he, he went to London and got asylum there. He was uh, poisoned by polonium-210, a very lethal radioactive poison in London. And that case actually is interesting because, in fact, the British High Court, after several years and a lot of persistence on the part of Litvinenko's um, widow, to whom I dedicate my book, by the way, they decided to have a real investigation and, a, and an in-depth inquiry into Litvinenko's death. And they actually did prove that these two men hired by the FSB were the ones who administered this poison to Litvinenko. So it, they were tied directly to the Kremlin. Now, the high court judge, I think for, for diplomatic reasons or whatever, he only said probably Putin ordered these crimes. Again, there wasn't a smoking gun, but it was about as close as you could get. Because interestingly enough, uh, first of all, Russia, th- these men, after they administered the uh, poison, it was through a tea. Litvinenko drank tea with them in the Millennium Hotel, uh, in the Pine Bar of the Millennium Hotel. And it took him about 23 days before he died. And they didn't know what the cause was until the very last day when they finally got all these experts in. He'd been in the hospital, and they figured it out that it was polonium. Meanwhile, these two killers hired by the FSB had gone back to Russia, and they um, were it, the British government asked to have them extradited. The Russian government refused. Not only that, President Putin gave one of the men, Andrei Lugovoy, a medal, a high honor, and Lugavoy was made a member of parliament. So, um, and this with the full knowledge that these men had carried out the murder. So that just kind of, I'm, I'm citing that case first because that, uh, in, in, you know, in most people's opinions, that was pretty well proven. I mean, a, a huge amount of evidence right. pointing to the Kremlin. Indeed, and we and we covered that on our program as well, but but not to the degree and depth that you did. 
which is and, phenomenal. And Amy, I want to ask you this before we, we go any further, um, especially after the election. Uh, I, for some reason, many Americans believe that Putin is a strong moral leader and that he is a, an advocate for, for Christianity and, and Christians in Russia. Even uh, adding on to what you just said, how is this a misconception? Well, that's an interesting question because, you know, um, President Putin, um, very quickly once he became president in 2000, he portrayed himself as someone who was religious. And the Kremlin has used the church as a kind of a propaganda mechanism to give uh, them more legitimacy. And, um, you know, I personally have no idea what uh, Putin's personal beliefs are. But he certainly, you know, has sort of kowtowed to the Russian Orthodox Church. And, and you know, probably quite a few people in Russia believe that um, that Putin and the Kremlin, you know, are committed to the uh, Russian Orthodoxy. But I, 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 judging from the way uh, Putin behaves, I think it's highly unlikely that he really is a Christian. Uh, yeah, if you're, you know, the circumstantial cases or the circumstantial evidence that that are reflected in the cases in your book, um, it's it's hard to balance that Christianity belief, uh, the ideology of being a Christian, with the, uh, the with the possibility of ordering the murder of your political opponents. Um, well, it's interesting only because you see, in the Soviet period, communism was the ideology. And there was no Christ, you know, the, the churches were closed. The leadership made no pretense of being religious because they were communists and the communists were the, were the religion. So it's just interesting. There was, there was kind of a gap, an ideological, a sort of a belief gap once, uh, the Soviet Union collapsed and we no longer had communism. So one of the, uh, you know, one area that um, has been kind of used is is the Russian Orthodox Church. Let me ask you what you just said there, because I've been doing a lot of studying of uh, research. In fact, Diana West, I don't know, the author of American Betrayal, mm-hmm. and during the, the, the Soviet era in the 30s and 40s and such, did we really did communism end in your view uh, or is it is it i mean because you said you know with, with the ending of communism i believe and i'm paraphrasing here did it really end or did it kind of change colors or change faces a little bit well again that's a that's a good question actually um I don't even, I don't believe that the members of the Politburo in the, in the, um, uh, post-Stalin period were even that fervent in their belief of communism. It was, it was used more to, uh, you know, generate loyalty and feelings of patriotism to the regime. Yes, they were communist in the sense that they didn't believe in private property and private enterprise. But so, you know, they had a socialist or a communist system. But as far as their actual belief in communism, uh, you know, we're, I'm talking about the, the real true communism of Lenin, where, you know, the right. proletariat was going to rule. This kind of fell by the wayside. Now, in the post-Soviet period, we there is a communist party in Russia and they, you know, they get elected to parliament. 
um, but it's not very strong, and, okay. and it doesn't have much of a following. So I would say that communism is pretty well defunct now. In the, the 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 old style, old guard <laughs> communism, I suppose, is what we're yeah. And and I could I, I love this conversation because I, I really I, there's just so much. To, to really learn, and, and you cover so much in your book, Orders to Kill. That was a great, is a great book. Um, it, it was one, it's one of my favorite reads in this, um, in this subject area. Uh, but okay, so getting back to Putin, how does he get away with murdering his opponents, assuming that you're, you're making the case for that, which you are, and, and I believe that. How, how does he get away with murdering his opponents, uh, with impunity? He gets away with it because he controls all of the um, agencies, the judicial and the legal system and the police and the security services are all um, uh, under his direct control. When he became uh, president, he basically installed his former KGB colleagues into leading positions in the government and uh, particularly in the security and the police and the, the judicial organs. And there, so these people take their orders from Putin and they're, you know, all the investigations are, are controlled by them. So, and the, interestingly enough, there's no, nothing like, um, a parliamentary oversight over the over the police and the security services, so they they don't have to answer to anyone. So if they're investigating a murder, they usually pretty quickly come up with the with the trigger man, somebody who has actually you know pulled the trigger. But then when it comes to investigating who is behind the plot, who is the mastermind. We call it the Zakazchik in Russian. That that person is never found. So it's it's basically because the Russian system of justice is a sham. I mean, they don't have when it's any any case that's uh, important to the Kremlin, be it economic or political or whatever. It, it, there is no uh, justice at all. It's all controlled at the top. Amy, I want to ask you a question because in reading your book, um, Orders to Kill, folks, this is the book. It, it's a great read. Uh, I did not know this history. What happened in September of 1999 in Russia and how did that help propel Vladimir Putin to the presidency? Well, um, in September 99, um, there were four bombings in different apartments in Russia. And uh, it, it just came, I think there were over 300 people who were killed. These buildings just crumbled. It was a huge, huge shock. I, I and others have called it the Russians' version of 9-11 because all these innocent people were suddenly dead. Well, Mr. Putin at the time was prime minister and Yeltsin was getting preparing himself to step down because he couldn't he couldn't stay in power any longer. He was a drunk. He was in bad health. He uh, basically was completely ineffectual as a leader, and they had to find somebody else to take his place. So Putin's circle, we uh, it's called sometimes the family around Putin or around um, excuse me around Yeltsin, 
decided on Mr. Putin. He at that time was head of the FSB, the security services. And I think there's quite a bit of evidence that they felt by uh, anointing Putin as uh, Yeltsin's successor, he would make sure that Yeltsin and his family wouldn't be subjected to any uh, corruption charges, that they'd be protected after Yeltsin stepped down, which is what happened. But nobody really had ever heard of Mr. Putin. So the bombings, what they did was, first of all, it, it shocked the whole country. It was an outrage. And uh, the leadership blamed it on Chechens, the Chechens who were in the Republic of Chechnya, who were separatists and had carried out some um, terrorist attacks. So this was the justification, these bombings, for the Russian military to launch their second war in Chechnya. And they marched in and basically, um, well, they invaded the whole country, inflicted huge casualties. It was a terrible, terrible bloodbath. But Mr. Putin sort of came forth as this man who appealed to the Russians' patriotism and their nationalism. And he said, we're going to get these Chechens. We're going to wipe them out in their outhouses, is what he said. And um, this gave him a huge amount of credibility because suddenly he was the leader who was protecting them. Now, back to the evidence, whether, you know, whether it was the FSB that was actually behind the bombings. This is a fairly complicated um, case, and I am by no means the only one to suggest that the FSB was involved. There um, have been quite a few investigative reports by Russian journalists and Western journalists um, that have have pretty much shown that the FSB basically uh, got these people to go in and commit these, carry out these bombings, but they were the ones who planned it so that Putin would somehow gain this um, uh, popularity, if you will, among the Russian people. That's all right. Go ahead. Yeah, no, uh, I didn't want to talk over you. Sorry about that. We go ahead. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. And uh, I'm 34 years old, and the uh, and I've studied a lot of history. But the, you know, reading about these bombings, this is the first time that uh, I, I've actually heard about them. And the what you talk about in the book about how uh, through the the politics they would. Uh, separate uh, the, through the ethnicities and, and play one against the other and we kind of, we've seen that again um, you know, just in recent years uh, in, in Russia and it, and with this polarization of the media today that we see, you know, Russia Russia, Russia and Putin being uh, and Putin and Trump uh, Putin and Clinton that it has uh, inserted itself into American politics. I want to ask you this, do you believe that the uh, Russian agenda or the agenda of Putin um, is that to influence American politics? Well, I, I, I do believe that um, the Russians certainly had their views. If we're talking about American politics, we let's go straight to the, the question of the presidential elections. I think it's pretty clear that... Uh, Putin and his colleagues did not like Obama, and they didn't like Hillary Clinton. 
And so they, um, for, for a number of reasons, but they, uh, I think felt that Mr. Trump, uh, now President Trump, would be a better candidate who might be more favorably inclined to cooperating with the Kremlin. And so I think they did. Well, we know now, of course, that they did interfere in our elections by, you know, all the ads that they bought on Facebook, by the hacking of the Democratic National Committee um, and and Twitter and, and this and that. So I think, yes, they did try to influence our presidential campaign. And I think that they were were hoping and were pleased that Mr. Trump was elected president. Now, I don't think that the Kremlin anticipated that their involvement would emerge so clearly, and I think it's caused them a lot of a lot of headache because I think what they what they really wanted to do was to have this be a covert effort. And I think right now, even though they still uh, the Kremlin still seems favorable towards the Trump administration. I think actually the Trump administration is still a question mark for them because they don't really know um, what kind of a policy Mr. Trump, uh, President Trump is going to pursue. It's still early days. Hmm. So uh, I, I think, you know, did they have a plan? I think it, it you know, it was sort of a crapshoot for the Kremlin because they really didn't know what they were going to get with President Trump. I, I appreciate that analysis, by the way, the, the candor of your analysis, um, given the fact that, um, however, although I might, I, I might register an objection with you, the, the Facebook ads, and correct me if I'm wrong, although there was a, a lot of money spent, I think only $6,500 um, investigation revealed, only about 6500 went to the Facebook uh, side of electioneering. Um, unless I'm wrong, uh, but but having said that, um, your analysis, your measured analysis of the of this is is very interesting, nonetheless, and, or indeed. And Amy, I wanted to get your insight onto uh, what Putin' ad- uh, possible agenda was in America and in American politics, because I wanted to ask you about the uh, the military side of things with the Putin's uh, feels threatened by the encroachment of NATO. Do you? Oh yeah. Uh, and, and the second part of that question was going to be: Do you think the influence of American politics is a preposition for a possible war or conflict with America hmm. between Russia and the United States? Yes. <clears throat> well, to answer your your first question, it's very interesting. I don't know if either of you saw this very long four-hour interview that Oliver Stone did with uh, Vladimir Putin. It, uh, it came out this summer, actually, and he was really the only journalist that's gotten such exclusive um, access to uh, Vladimir Putin. And um, it really was struck me. I, I was, I was, um, I wouldn't say surprised, but it, um, it was very interesting. Time and time again. Putin talked to Oliver Stone about NATO and what in how they were Russia's enemy and how they were trying to undermine Russian uh, politics and society. 
And, and you know, I, I believe Mr. Putin. I think he and his colleagues, because we're not just talking about one man. We're talking about a group of men. Uh, I think that they genuinely do feel uh, threatened by NATO. I don't think they feel like NATO is going to march in militarily to Russia by any means. But I think they feel that NATO is trying, and the West in general, Western governments, NGOs and so forth, are trying to undermine the Russian system of government. So they are, you know, genuinely nervous about uh, NATO. And that was one of the, I think, one of the things they were hoping that President Trump um, they were hoping that Trump, and I think it, to a certain sense that hope has been realized, President Trump is not, you know, he, he went over to NATO and he kind of voiced a lack of enthusiasm about the NATO alliance and questioned it. And, and of course, this is something that uh, would naturally please the Kremlin because this they view as the greatest threat that they're facing. But I don't, I don't think we're talking, um, I think that, uh, Russia is not ruled by irrational men. And I don't think we're really talking about any military involvement on the part of either the West or Russia at this point. Um, of course they do have their military still in eastern Ukraine. And it would be nice if they would, uh, withdraw those troops. But I don't see that happening for a while. Okay, and I know we're uh, we're getting uh, kind of away from uh, the the political murders and the regime of Putin, um, but the geopolitical situation in the world today. Uh, this is the last question I'll ask you about this. Where w- where would Russia fall uh, if there's a conflict? We see them backing up um, the Syrian government. We also see them backing up Iran. Uh, if there was a, a World War Three type scenario. Would Russia be on the side of the U.S. geopolitically and militarily? Oh, gee. Well, that's yeah. a hard one. Um, I, I mean, I don't know what kind of a military involvement you're talking about. I, I think, I think Russia likes, uh, likes to sort of stir up, uh, trouble. It, uh, Putin and the Kremlin like to kind of, it's very important to Putin that he's a global player. And that he has influence. I don't think that, uh, the Kremlin would welcome any kind of increased military conflict, military conflict, even in Syria, for example. I don't think they want, uh, military involvement. I think they, uh, like to undermine the regimes that they are nervous about. They like to undermine them politically and economically, but I. So it's very difficult for me to to imagine. I mean, what what would happen with Iran, for example? Um, yes, you're right that that uh, Russia is not particularly on our side with Iran, but again, you know, they they have a a lot of their own concerns about the Middle East. You know, they, as I mentioned, they do have their own terrorist problem. And, um, they've yeah. got a lot of people from the North Caucasus in Syria. And, um, so, you know, I, I don't think that they want to get things to the point of any kind of real military conflict. 
And uh, yeah, and I, I I have a tendency to agree with that. Uh, they, they want to stir up trouble globally, but they're they're uh, they've got national. Putin at least has got uh, nationalist interest primary. I suppose is that a good way to put it? Is, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. But, you know, like in the Ukraine, it seems that the MO is the same as what you um, talk about in your book is how he is able to get away with these uh, murders and assassinations and deaths without ever being directly related to him or anything actually, um, you know, getting back to him. Uh, it's all circumstantial, as you say, and, it, and it's interesting to see how the different stances on Russia and the geopolitical world come out. But getting back getting back to your, your book, the... Um, the communist system of Russia, the Soviet Russia that fell, and the the KGB, uh, Putin has he he just uses the same tactics, only wraps them up in a different ideology. Is that a fair statement? The same tactics as 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 the uh, the the, KG, the communist KGB style of government. Um, well, there are some differences. Um, first of all, people can engage in private enterprise. So, you know, they've got, uh, they have much more economic freedom. And people can leave the country whenever they want and, and travel freely. And compared with what, uh, existed in the, in, under Brezhnev, let's not talk, things loosened up considerably under Gorbachev, but, um, compared with the Brezhnev in the Khrushchev period, of course, there's a lot more freedom of expression. I mean, you didn't see the kind of demonstrations that you see in Russia now during the, in the Soviet period, except at the very end when the Soviet Union collapsed. So in that regard, things are, are very different. The only thing that I would say is that, that, that's, that it, it, there's a distinct parallel is that in Russia, you don't really have any kind of free elections. Because the state controls the um, television, and that's where <clears throat> a, a lot of people get their news is from state-controlled television. So they get all that propaganda. They don't really get a balanced view of anything. And people who appear on the ballots in these elections, be it to the parliament or now we're going to have the presidential election in March, they they don't have a choice. There are no alternatives, really. So it's usually the United Russia Party. I mean, there there were elections in September, and we did see a, a few independents winning some of the local elections. But basically, um, we don't have fair, they do not have fair free elections in Russia at all. Right, right. and I think that's, that's important for us, we in the West, to understand uh, so many misconceptions. Our guest is Amy Knight. She's the author of Orders to Kill. It's a tremendous book, folks. Uh, you've, you've, if you want to know the the real uh, nitty gritty from from Amy Knight, who earned her PhD degree in Russian politics at the London School of Economics, Political Science, uh, back in 1977, she's taught she's taught a number of locations in the United States and Canada, and of course, she's the author of five books. This is one of them, um, and perhaps one of the most uh, engaging, at least in my view, in terms of the the Putin regime and uh, what it's all about. And she's appeared on so many news channels. Again, our guest, Amy Knight, uh, you can get her book. Uh, just, uh, in fact, go to our show description, and that'll take you right to Amy Knight, um, amyknight.org. And uh, uh, that, that for the book. And, of course, uh, um, 
We're, we're so glad to have her. Uh, and also, Knight, want to you know, give a ahead. special thanks to uh, Bill yes. McIntosh and Chuck Monroe too. Yeah, uh, for for providing us with guests. Uh, Ocaso Media, Bill McIntosh. Thank you so much, as always. Absolutely, uh, Miss Knight. Uh, who, who's who's next? Who's next on Putin's hit list in your estimation? Well, I I mean, you know, I hate to I hate to even say anything <laughs> like that because it it you know it w- would be really be horrible um, if we had another act of violence. But just this week, um, there was a very, very shocking um, stabbing of a young uh, woman, 32 years old, who was the is the deputy editor of a radio show, a program called Echo of Moscow. And it's uh, it's Russia's main independent radio. It's a, they have a website too with blogs and so forth. It's a, <clears throat> it's really the the most important news outlet in Russia. And uh, a man came in and got up to um, this this young woman Tanya Felgengauer and stabbed her in the throat. And um, she was in pretty serious condition. She had to be operated on. I I have read now that she's stable. I don't know, you know, what damage was done to her, to her, you know, her vocal cords or whatever. But it was really, really shocking. And um, the thing is, is that um, some this man who 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 did this, who stabbed her. They caught him right away, and he's in police custody. Turns out he was he was kind of crazy. He he he'd been kind of fantasizing about uh, Tanya Feldengauer, and he'd written some things on his blog about her. So he was he was definitely mentally you know crazy guy. But then the question was, how did he know that she was going to be there? She was didn't have a show at that time. He had a map with him of the building, and some of the people who work with uh, Tanya have suggested that that in fact that he was put up to do this. Now, why would why would that happen? Well, she is an outspoken critic of Vladimir Putin, and in fact. She had just been in a in a on a Russian uh, television program a couple of weeks ago. They talked about uh, the West trying to undermine Russia and the evil West, and they mentioned her as be as being uh, the recipient of funds from the West and being you know kind of in cahoots mm. with West. So you know people are saying, gosh. This came on so so soon after that. So again, we have a, have a situation of people just wondering. But I can tell you one thing: it intimidates Russian journalists and politicians when something like this happens. And just a month ago, one of the best known journalists in Russia, Yulia Latunina fled Russia because her car had been bombed, her house had been gassed, and she was terrified for her life. So, um, you know, anybody who stays there faces danger. I, um, I'm, I mentioned, I've written a, a few uh, articles recently about Alexei Navalny, 
who is uh, an anti-corruption crusader, and he's running for the presidency. He has been told that he will not be allowed on the ballot because he has two felony charges against him. They were bogus charges, um, but nonetheless, the Russian government has said that he can't run. He has ignored this, and he has gone all over the country campaigning, and he has a huge following, particularly among the young people. And he, you know, he's nationally known. He's uh, very articulate, charismatic, handsome, and he, in addition, he's oh, he's made himself a, a real enemy of the Kremlin because he has produced with his staff several uh, films, documentary exposés about um, the Putin leadership in which he has demonstrated how corrupt these people are. So um, if you were going to ask me someone who I feel really, you know, is probably under threat, it would be Alexei Navalny. And he has insisted that he won't leave Russia. He did say a few months ago that he thinks he has a 50-50 chance of being killed. But, um, you know, I think we can just all hope and pray that the Kremlin wouldn't, wouldn't do this. You know, um, and again, our, our guest is Amy Knight, the author of Orders to Kill. It's a tremendous book. And our, our thanks go out to Bill McIntosh of Casa Media and, uh, Mr. Uh, Chuck Monroe from Gold Dust, Gold Dust, uh, PR firm. But, uh, and you're so gracious with your time and, and sharing your knowledge. I, I want to thank you so much. Uh, I've got to ask you, though, um, it was a couple of years ago. It was November 2015 in Washington, D.C. Um, the um, uh, Mikhail Lesnan. Lesnan. Mikhail Lesnan. That, yeah. That's who it was. Okay, yes. Uh, seemingly took a fall. And it was attributed initially to an accidental uh, fall. However, and we heard this at the time, that this was something more political. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I I haven't, to be honest, I haven't followed it too closely. I, I know that initially um, the the police and, and probably the FBI was involved initially as well. I'm quite sure because, you know, he was a foreigner and he, I should say that, um, Mr. Lesson had um, formerly been the head of Gazprom Media, and he was part of Putin's inner circle. And he actually he has a son who lives in California. I, I believe he's a filmmaker. I'm not sure about that. But anyway, back to Mr. Lesson. He was a very heavy drinker, and that was you know that was uh, pretty much a fact. And so the initial report was he went back to his hotel room. And he fell, or he fell, had one fall on the way to his hotel. Anyway, he was pretty battered up. But it was attributed to him being drunk. Then only later, uh, anonymous FBI sources have started to let it be known, and, and it was picked up by journalists, that in fact they are considering this death to be uh, suspicious. But I don't know where that investigation is going. I don't know, um, in particular, what would have caused him to be, uh, you know, why someone would want to kill him. 
except, you know, there's always some intrigue when it comes to, to Russians, particularly at that level. And, you know, perhaps he was giving information to American authorities and, and the Russians didn't like it. There, you know, you, there could be a number of reasons, but you're absolutely right. Um, this is, there's still a question mark about that death. So that would tell me he's got reach in, in America in particular, as well as other Western countries, but, but think about the reach. And the, uh, the investigation first said that it was, uh, um, a nat- accidental, yeah, and, a and then they they uh, a drunken fall, no less. Yeah, then they vodka. they yeah. Uh, amended that yeah. um, death, and then they they said that it was uh, with acute ethanol intoxication as yeah. a contributory cause of death. But that's very interesting to see, and I remember that happening. It was a big deal. Yeah, it, it certainly was. Now, can, can we get in, if you don't mind, because this I find fascinating. Um, the Boston Marathon bombings, I mentioned that uh, prior to you coming on in the introduction. Uh, what role did, did Putin play, if any, in the Boston Marathon bombings? And I think this is kind of fascinating. Yes, well, actually, I'm, uh, I'm one of the few people that's, that's gotten into this issue. And um, perhaps I go out on a limb, but I, what I really do in, in that section of the book is I lay out the evidence, and I mean it's up to the reader to draw their own conclusions, and and uh, I don't pretend to. I let's let's put it this way: I I raise questions that I think are very important to raise. So I'll just start out by saying that by the time of the Boston bombings, the Russians really had their own terrorism problems. I've mentioned that in the North Caucasus there are, um, there's a strong insurgent movement. And um, uh, the North Caucasians, not all of them, of course, but a lot of them are very anti-Moscow. And so um, uh, the Kremlin had, you know, has, have, has been having to deal with these terrorist attacks. They were uh, uh, hosting the Sochi Olympics, and people were starting to say, gee, is it going to be safe? You know, I mean, Sochi's pretty close to the North Caucasus, and this is a problem. So... And, and the um, Kremlin always kind of wanted to justify its harsh treatment of the Chechens by saying that they're terrorists and, and, you know, and saying, you know, you have to understand that we all share this global problem with terrorism. And so they were always insisting that it wasn't, uh, you know, that it wasn't about Chechen separatism, that, you know, that they were global terrorists. So the uh, Tsarnaev brothers, as you know, are, the father was from Chechnya. And they came from, the family came from Dagestan in the, in the North Caucasus, and they were living in Boston. And, uh, Tamerlane, the older brother, the one who was run over by the younger brother, um, uh, Jokar, he was the one who became very radicalized. And at some point, the FSB, uh, alerted the FBI and the CIA that, um, they thought that T- Tamerlane might be a bit of a concern. Now, it's interesting that they were even following Tamerlane Tsarnaev because he'd been living in Boston for a number of years. And the FSB had phone conversations and, you know, they were following him, sort of. Anyway, the FBI checked it out. They interviewed uh, Tamerlane. They interviewed the Tsarnaev family. And they didn't find anything particularly suspicious. And that was kind of that. Well, then 
Tamerlane decided to go back to Russia, and he went to the North Caucasus. I uh, maybe people don't realize, but they're they are uh, Chechnya and Dagestan are part of Russia. Um, and so uh, Tamerlane went back in January of 2012. And he slipped through the cracks. The, um, the FBI and the Homeland Security didn't know that he left, and they didn't know that he came back. He stayed in Russia for six months. So in order to even be allowed to come in the country, um, the Russians would have interviewed him. They would have asked him why he was coming, what he was up to, and they would have followed him very, very carefully. I'm not the only one to say this. So... Tamerlane went down to uh, Dagestan, and he got involved with uh, the radicals down there. And he came back very radicalized, and he had a global kind of a jihad idea after he spent the six months in Russia. The Russians never informed either the FBI or the CIA about this six-month trip that Tamerlane made. So I um, I just raised the possibility that it certainly suited their purposes to have a Chechen or a part Chechen, two brothers, commit this terrorist attack. Um, Putin, you know, called up uh, Obama right away and said, now, you know, we're on your side and we all share this global terrorism problem. And it, it, you know, the Russians made it was kind of a, a propaganda coup for them that they were able to say, yes, now the Americans have their problem with terrorism. So, um, you know, we'll, I don't know if we'll ever know the answer, but I think it is, uh, it raised uh, uh, red flags for some people that the Russians never even reported to the FBI that Tamerlane had spent six months in their country. Hmm. Okay. And all of this, it's, it's fascinating. And, and, um, it's interesting how, how all of, all of these, well, especially the Boston Marathon bombing, how that, how you just explained that and how that kind of fits, fits in the, the geopolitical arena. Um, I don't want to belabor the point, but it, it's fascinating the, the, the points you bring up, the case you lay out. And as you've done throughout your book, Orders to Kill, um, very fascinating. And by the way, our guest is Amy Knight. She's the author of five books. All five are great. One of my favorite, I, I gotta tell you, one of, the KGB, the KGB police and politics in the Soviet Union. Uh, was it your first book that you wrote? Yes, it was. Okay. Uh, for some reason, I, I'm, I'm just, I just kind of like that, uh, like, like that book, uh, drawn to that book. Um, it was, it was, uh, and this is kind of a, a softball question out there, but what's your favorite, what was your favorite book to write? Uh, cause this had to be very difficult to write, the, this last book. Uh, very time consuming, very involved and, uh, research heavy. What was your favorite book? I'm just curious out of the books you've written. Well, my, my favorite book to write was a book called, Who Called, Who Killed Kirov? The Kremlin's Greatest Mystery. And, um, I, well, I enjoyed writing it. it. It was, it's the story of the murder of Sergei Kirov, who was the, at the time in 1934, he was the head of the Leningrad party apparatus. And, um, he was, he was, uh, shot 
while he was in his office um, and he was shot by a, a crazy guy and people for years had thought that Stalin had put this, had planned this and that it was actually the, at that time it was called the NKVD. The security police had been behind this murder. And um, uh, the Russians have, uh, and the Soviets too, they had commissions. They were always, it was kind of like um, the murder of Kennedy. I mean, you know, it was one of these cases that nobody could ever figure out. And I really enjoyed, um, I'm always, I've been very fascinated with the Stalin period. And for me, it was interesting because I was able to go to um, Leningrad slash St. Petersburg and do research and talk to people. And I also um, could use all the archival material. So I wasn't um, keeping up. Uh, when I write books about more current politics, I'm, I'm kind of keeping up with everything that happens. And for me, it's, it's very rewarding to write a, a historical book so I can really sit back and, and delve into it and, um, you know, look at things in a different perspective. But I, yes, I, I, I enjoyed writing that because, um, I'm, I'm just fascinated with the Stalin period. And I kind of thought so, uh, as well as it's a great murder mystery as well. But, um, um, yeah, well, 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 thank you for entertaining that question as academic as that, that, that might have been. Uh, I, I just, I, I, authors with multiple books, I always like to ask that question because they always have a favorite. And then that's, and so that tells me a little bit about, uh, uh, about about that, um, we only have a couple minutes left. Anything that we haven't covered that you feel that would we should cover with respect to your book, Orders to Kill? Um, anything at all? Well, um, you know, I think some people say, "Well, so what do you do about this?" I mean, okay, so let's say you know Putin is a murderer. You know, what are we supposed to do about it? And the answer to that question is. <laughs> I mean, there isn't really very much that Western governments can do because, I mean, we we have to face we we're dealing with uh, Vladimir Putin, who is entrenched in power, and he's very likely going to win the presidential elections in March. Even if Alexei Navalny, I mean, there'll probably be a lot of protests and and so on and so forth. But you know, Putin may be around for a long time. I think that. Just calling attention to the fact that we know this is going on, just as the British government really, you know, finally and reluctantly called attention to the murder of Litvinenko, I think it's important because, first of all, it, it, um, it, it does, you know, send some sort of a message to the Kremlin that, you know, that we're, we know that we're, that we're not deluded. But secondly, I think it's important for human rights groups and uh, and the courageous journalists and and political politicians in Russia who are critical of the regime. I, I think it's important that we acknowledge the injustice that has been committed by these murders, and you know, and honor these people. When, when something like that happens, like for example, the most recent, you know, the murder of Boris Nemtsov. I mean, that, that, of course, it got a huge amount of international attention because Nemtsov was a very important, um, politician and, and, you know, very admired and he'd come to the United States and, 
um, testified uh, before I, he met with Congress and so on and so forth. I think just the the recognition um, that these things are happening and bringing it out in the open is just a, a very important thing to do because, you know, down the line, when hopefully we do see Mr. Putin leave and, and a more democratic government um, uh, come to power in Russia, you know, it, it's it's important that this history be recognized. Very well said. KGB expert and uh, just a fascinating researcher, author, um, Amy Knight, and she's appeared on all of the major networks and, of course, rave reviews of her book, uh, Orders to Kill. Count me in on that, too, uh, as far as the reviews are concerned. Uh, Ms. Knight, uh, thank you so very much for your gracious gift of time uh, tonight. It's just been fascinating. And, thank you for having me. Oh, it's been our pleasure. And, and please come back again and uh, provide us updates, your analysis on, on KGB history and uh, current events. The invitation is open. I'm happy to. All right. Thank you so very much. And our, and our thanks go out to Bill McIntosh and, of course, Chuck Monroe, uh, both of them, for and, and John, for arranging this interview. Uh, what a gracious what a gracious lady. What a knowledgeable lady. And, and if you really want to understand the KGB, that's the book, Orders to Kill uh, Putin, Understand the Mind of Putin. She does a great job in, in assembling the various um, murders. Uh, the uh, political murders. I guess that's what we call it, right, Chuck? Political murders. That's it. Political murders. Yeah. Murders yeah. of political so. opposition and dissidents. All right. Folks, thanks so much for joining us. We're coming back. You're going to want to stay for the next hour. And we're not going to tell you who is coming. You're going to want to stay. Be right back. Just what kind of thriller predicts the future? In Three Days in the Belly of the Beast, Daniel Holdings wrote about the God Particle before CERN actually discovered the God Particle. In As the Darkness Falls, Daniel wrote about an Islamist terrorist confederacy that rose up out of Syria and declared a caliphate three years before ISIS was ever heard of. In his newest novel, Between the Veil, Daniel talks about a space between dimensions where supernatural beings can walk. He says that these novels are a warning from the creator to his creation. Will war come to America? Will the world's economies collapse? Are we looking at increased earthquakes and volcanic activity? Will the United States fall into civil war? You can find all of Daniel's work at his website, DanielHoldings.com. That's DanielHoldings.com. All of these things and more are talked about in Daniel's books. To find out what's coming next, go to DanielHoldings.com. Worldwide demand is making coconuts one of the highest yielding cash crops available today. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and many high net worth individuals have invested billions of dollars into coconuts for strong growth and solid long-term income. Yields could be as high as 18% or more per year. 
Capital appreciation and exceptional income for up to 60 long years would be an absolutely brilliant investment to pass on to future generations. Diversify wisely with direct ownership of fully managed coconuts on prime farmland close to the beautiful Costa Rican border. For more information, qualified accredited investors should go to ProfitsInCoconuts.com or phone 855-888-6288. That's 855-888-6288. This announcement does not constitute an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offer made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288 or visit ProfitsInCoconuts.com. ProfitsInCoconuts.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond. Stain by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stain by Blood at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stain by Blood. So far, we had Laura Loomer on with us for about the first 45 minutes, and then Amy Knight, no, uh, terrific it, author. I, I said, go ahead and bring us back, and, and, and I interrupt you right away, but the, the, Laura Loomer, uh, tenacity. She's got more guts, and I say this with all due respect to the to to, to our male listener. She's got more guts than a lot, a lot of guys out there. Do, do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely, man! I, I'll absolutely. tell you what—I would not want to get in—I would not want to get between Laura Loomer and the facts, okay? Because she's she's going right, she's going to walk right through you, Laura. One of the best, thank you. Uh, you know, one of the best things she did, as she said in the interview, was as she was investigating what happened in Las Vegas from New York, deciding to go to Las Vegas. I think opened up a, a whole lot of avenues for her and led to the release of some information we, we never would have gotten otherwise if Absolutely. she hadn't gone to Las Vegas. And the, the timeline on that, and, and let's not forget Las Vegas, please, uh, for, for the sake of the 58 dead, let's not forget Las Vegas. And for those who are still recovering, let's not forget Las Vegas. And please, those of you who are looking into this, Yes, conspiracy by definition, but don't tell me that there was no bodies, no deaths there. Please, let's not let's not do that. Um, uh, let's not sully the uh, search for the truth with the going so far out in the weeds and so so far out in the jungle that you can't get back in. It's it just um, you, you know we're open minded, but we're not so open minded that our brains spill out onto the table. All right, we, that's the difference between uh, the truth seekers and, and the people who are peppered into the people who are um, into the community of those who seek the truth. And, and I'm, yeah. you know, I. It, so by the way, I've got a, because I'm down a program. 
uh, I gotta, I, ha- I have to say this. Tune in tomorrow at nine o'clock, Global Star Radio Network and Blog Talk Radio. And I, I do want to do a special on a couple. I, I'm so far behind on things. You've got no, well, the honeybee will tell you how crazy it is here. <laughs> yeah. um, and she only saw it. She saw it when it was really, really slow. Um, but she'll tell you, it's crazy. It is crazy. While we're uh, we're going to have Josh Dean on with us in just a moment, I want to talk about this. It's not only Hollywood that is dealing with the sexual abuse allegations of exploitation and, and abuse. Five women accused journalist Mark Halperin of sexual harassment, and this has led to a number of networks from his position. He had a powerful position at ABC News. He also had a show... Uh, Game Changer on either Showtime um, or HBO that is now canceled, but more and more women are coming forward. And, uh, you know, we asked when this Harvey Weinstein story came out that the behaviors were there for decades. It seemed like, it, for whatever reason, this was the time that people or somebody wanted to get this out in the open. And now we've seen a flood of um, other people being accused. And now it has, Tentacles has reached into. Uh, the media, and it's not just Hollywood, but this is the uh, the culture of the corrupt that we live you, you in. You know, you know what bothers me about about this though, and Corey Feldman did a video, by the way, yeah. as an aside. I I, we, I think everybody he, reached out he, to him in the last twenty four hours, from me to John, even to uh, Craig the Sawman Sawyer. Uh, you know, offered uh, his assistance because Man, what's going by on him there? not holding by him withholding names and threatening to go public, he's putting his life in danger. So keep him in your prayers. And I think I I think I kind of know where he's, what studio and the people. But that's, um, yeah. All right. Um, but by the way, our last hour guest, uh, Amy Knight, what an incredible academic mind. Now, I would, uh, next time we have her back, maybe I'll, I'll get more into, because I've got some ideological differences. Notice how I said that? Uh, ideological, ideological differences. Uh, perhaps a, a few, not much, but she is really an expert in the KGB. I gotta say that, my goodness, uh, reading the book Orders to Kill, um, poo. I could not hold, uh, you know, I couldn't hold her, uh, coffee for her in that, in that venue. So, uh, and I do like, uh, Russian history. I, I, I enjoy that Soviet history and how it affects where we are today. And speaking of that, now, speaking of that, buckle up. Because here's the deal. And I want to thank Bill McIntosh for, for this as well for this uh, helping set up this interview arranging this interview and John Robertson always did, does a great job uh, Bill McIntosh is the guy he's, he's the man Macasa Media now March 8th 1969 where were you March 8th 1969 yeah I know the answer hmm. I know the answer there uh, Joe but um, did you have you heard of the Soviet sub K-129 have you heard about the Glomar? Yeah, you you know you talked about it a little bit uh, the other night. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now I I've got very strong beliefs as to what happened, but there's a book. Our guest now, uh, Josh Dean, has written a book, "The Taking of K-129." It deals. It's a fascinating read. It's a well-researched book. It deals with uh, the specifically it deals with the recovery of. K-129. 
it's that that whole era, that whole time period, that whole uh, K-129, the Glomar, Howard Hughes, CIA is fascinating to me because, and that does overlap with, with uh, of course, I was a Russian submarine. Uh, but having said all of that, I'm going to welcome Mr. Josh Dean, the author of uh, The Taking of K-129. Josh, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Man, I'll tell you what, you write a tremendous book. You're Thank kick, you. kicking some butt with a book. Um <laughs> Um, and now let's have a discussion about this because I've got some information. A, a number of years ago, I, I had a, a, a gentleman uh, who had knowledge of, of, in fact, was involved tangentially in what, what, you're, what you've written about. Uh, what's your book about? For those who are unfamiliar with the K-129 Glomar and all this, uh, why don't you just start off by telling what, what people what your book is about and uh, the situation, the scenario that around K-129. Okay. So, so the, the basic flyover of the story is that the Soviet um, Pacific Fleet lost a submarine, a um, uh, what they call a boomer, a, a ballistic missile submarine that was carrying three submarine-launched ballistic missiles um, in the North Pacific. It was on a routine combat patrol. Uh, something went wrong during the course of that, and it sank, and the Soviets didn't know where it sank. They enacted a massive search to try and find it and were, were unable to find it. Now, the U.S. Navy was watching that happen, saw the search, had a pretty good idea of what submarine had been lost, and uh, went out and found it using a system of um, hydrophones that were installed on the bottom of the Pacific to listen to sub-traffic and the splashdown of ICBM tests. So we found it. We sent out a special project submarine called the USS Halibut to film the wreck and see if it was in a good enough condition that it might be salvageable um, and decided that in fact it was. There was a large section that contained the missiles and that would have had all the important things like cryptological machines and battle plans and um, thus began Project Azorian which was a massive four to five year uh, effort to recover the submarine and it was run by the CIA and not the Navy and uh, Howard Hughes provided the cover for the story um, you know, there's a lot between those steps, but basically, um, the CIA convinced the world that Howard Hughes was mining the ocean when, in fact, they were trying to steal a submarine from the bottom of the ocean. A submarine, by the way, that um, was involved in. Uh, well, what was that submarine doing? That was a nuclear sub. That was a Russian nuclear sub. It was. I mean, diesel electric propulsion, but it was carrying three nuclear armed ballistic missiles. So, you know, I, I suspect a lot of people listening know how important those were, but for those who aren't, during the Cold War, um, there was something called the nuclear triad, which was ICBMs, bombers, or uh, air, airborne ICBMs, and or airborne uh, ballistic missiles, and then also submarine missiles. So two of those things are very detectable and trackable. So you know, you, the United States, know where the Soviet Union's ICBMs are and vice versa. You know where the bomber fleets are and vice versa. What you don't know are where the submarines are. And, and the job of the submarines and the captains of those submarines was to stay hidden, to go out on missions and, and maintain a position within a certain range. You, well, you weren't in an exact location at any given time. You're moving around and trying to stay out of sight so that if war were to break out, you could surface and launch missiles without getting blown up. It was called second strike capability. So in theory, the, the country that had the most submarines hidden for the longest would win the war. Right. 
Okay. Now, I, I, I don't know how uh, deep or far out you want to go on this. Was the cause of the sinking of that submarine ever determined? Um, I just kind of want to start there. I've got a reason for asking that. Well, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, I avoided that entirely. My, my book really focuses on the American recovery, sort of picking up from the loss. I have thoughts on it. There has never been a definitive explanation by any party. Now, if you ask anyone in Russia, they'll tell you that there was an accidental collision with a U.S. submarine that was trailing it. Uh, the Russians think that was the USS Swordfish. Okay. The, the most common explanation given in the United States is that uh, one of two things happened. Uh, it was at snorkel depth when, when the accident happened, which means it could have been charging its batteries. It was diesel electric, so you would run the engines to charge the batteries to go back underwater and run silent. If a fire door break out at that time, you know, a catastrophic, a series of catastrophic, uh, catastrophic events could result from a fire. Um, the, the former chief acoustic analyst of the Navy, a guy named Bruce Rule, analyzed the um, acoustic da- data that the, the Navy used to locate the sub, and, and he determined, his, or his theory is that um, the submarine had surfaced for a um, test firing exercise, and that one of the missiles caught fire in its tube, and then that fire actually burned the fuel. It wouldn't have ignited the, the warheads, but it did actually burn through the hull, um, causing okay. it to sink. So those are basically the three theories that are out there. Yeah, and I know you don't address this in your book, and I, and I apologize for taking you, dragging you into the weeds here. No, uh, I'm happy to talk about it. Well, you know, because I, I've got here's let me just let me just offer this for you and for the listeners and uh, the, the gentleman that I spoke with that was connected with the intelligence um, services. Um, at that time, in fact, early at that time, early, he was young and but connected with the intelligence services at that time, uh, had said that there was now. Uh, look, I, I don't have any way to prove this is true. Had said that that the the test firing that, that you referenced or the um, the fire in the tube was actually. If you think back the the geopolitics of the time with the war in Indochina, the, the Vietnam War in China, uh, their relationship with the United States because of Vietnam in Cambodia and all of that, uh, the the geopolitics of the time. If they if if China could um, somehow coer- well play a part into having Russia launch a nuke at Hawaii, I know this is far out there. Don't don't. Don't throw anything at me, uh, and and blame it on on, or I'm sorry, if Russia could, I'm sorry, yeah, if Russia could launch a nuke at Hawaii, blame it on China, given the tensions at the time, that would um, that would do have just an incredible effect on the uh, on the, uh, the the war over in Indochina. Your thoughts on that? And, and I, again, if you want to throw something at, at me, that's fine. I've heard no, I've heard it. I've heard that okay. theory. All right. I, I can tell you that I don't believe it, and the the reason is that the range of the ICBMs on that submarine was, I think it was about 1,100 miles, maybe 1,000, and the sub sank about 1,500 miles north northwest of Hawaii, okay. so it was well outside the range. Um, 
and that the location is is pretty bulletproof. Now, I've I've definitely heard that theory. It's been it's been suggested on a number of occasions for various reasons, and uh, I think part of it is because the, there's so much mystery around the surround the sinking, and the Navy and the CIA have never commented on it. I think there are people who know what happened. Um, it sort of allowed that window to open, and, and that that is a belief that. You know, not a few people hold it. I definitely have encountered it a few times. Okay. But I can, t- I can tell you that the location would make that like unlikely, if not impossible. Now, that said, there's a ver- there's another more plausible. Um, I don't know if you want to call it a conspiracy theory, but um, the Russian belief that that a U.S. Navy sub accidentally ran into it. Um, I, I think the, the suggestion that it was the USS Swordfish is, has been largely disproven, but there's a community of people who believe that there was a U.S. sub trailing, um, and, and they did accidentally collide, and that that submarine's identity was covered, has been covered up for 40 years, that it went into port for service, and that the Navy, uh, basically obfuscated the story, even from the CIA, because it, if that's true, if there was an accidental collision and a very um, small number of people within the Navy decided to cover that up, for good reason, right, because you could start a war, you accidentally sank one of their submarines, they're not going to take that very well. I can see why you might cover it up, but when the whole process was set in motion to go and recover the submarine, if you don't share that information with the CIA, then you're putting those people very much at risk. So to believe that theory means that the Navy hit it even from their own people, basically the CIA and the Pentagon, and allowed people to go out and, and, and mount a recovery effort that, you know, had that been exposed somehow during the middle of it, um, the, the Soviets would actually, would obviously uh, react with aggression. Gotcha. I mean, they they would have reacted with aggression anyway. Let's be honest. If, if I think if the, if the cover story hadn't held, that ship sitting out there was a sitting duck. There were a lot of people who worried that many things could go wrong during this mission and that the Soviets could very well just sink it and, and um, mm. play that out. Is that, you know, is that the Cuban Missile Crisis all over again? It could be. So, um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with I think there's these are all ideas that I've heard. The, the, the only answer that we know is that the truth has never been revealed. Whatever caused that sinking remains a mystery, and every year more people die who are alive in that time. So, that's you know, right. we may we may never know. That's yeah, exactly. I mean, look what's happening now with the uh, release of the JFK files uh, uh, more than fifty years after after the event. Uh, how's everyone liking the the release or the anticipated release? Right, the redactions uh, I'm sure are forthcoming. But having said all of that, your book picks up. At the recovery of this submarine, uh, which is fascinating, and in the reviews, by the way, if you if if you buy this on Amazon, check out the reviews. Tremendous reviews. The book is really in its the the top uh, uh, the top of its uh, field. It's 448 pages. It was released back in uh, September, and it's got amazing reviews. Um, and and I I look, I second it too. I mean, I I, I found the book very suspenseful, very intriguing, very. Uh, uh, I was in, I was really it, it was a it's a great read i appreciate that so, thank you well as as if uh my endorsement means anything but <laughs> but having said all of that uh let's start out and i think i might have mentioned 1960 it was 1968 not 1969 i think uh, joe i think you right, you're, you're right. Yep. so all right so uh let's start out go ahead and start out with uh with where you pick up here at um at this rescue salvage salvage operation 
Um, well, so, so yeah, my idea was to, um, you know, there have been, the, the story has been told in a few different ways as parts of books. There have been a few books that focused on, for instance, more about the engineering and the, and the sort of uh, naval side. There have been um, one of the CIA veterans actually wrote a kind of memoir about it. But I felt like there hadn't been a big um, sweeping A to Z narrative of how did this happen from the American perspective. It, in that way, I was able to avoid the question of what happened to the Soviet submarine. So the first, it does open with the sub leaving port, going out to sea, introducing you to the Soviet crew, and then it just sort of stops because we don't know what happened to them. And then it picks up with this massive search, and the U.S. Navy observes it happening and says, you know, there's a submarine that they've lost. We think it's the K-129. We know the K-129 has three very valuable ballistic missiles on board. It would have cryptological equipment. It would have, you know, all kinds of... It would have been a once-in-a-generation um, intelligence hall, basically. You know, all of those things were things we would not have had access to. Even just the submarine, you would have... You know, we would like to know, like, what is, what's the hull thickness? Where are the weak spots? Like, what kind of valves are they using? You know, everything... From the, the most mundane screw materials of the screws to, to the actual warheads to see um, what kind of fissile material they were using, what the detonation package was, how they were guiding their missiles. So it was basically decided once, once the Navy located it that this was a chance to go and do something that you would never, you know, when would you get the chance to see any of that, let alone all of it at one time? But you, incredibly risky, right? I, to do that risks war because it's actually considered an act of war it's against international law to steal um well to steal salvage or recover another country's man of um, war material but the loophole was when the soviets were searching for it and they abandoned the search it, it was assumed to be lost so the u.s you know the lawyers at the pentagon who, who were cleared into this said you know well they've abandoned the search so technically it's not theirs anymore you can salvage things that are fair game. They've done it to us with, like, you know, tanks and planes and things. Let's go do it to them. Uh, that part of your book, by the way, uh, I did not know that. They, I, I didn't realize there were there were actual rules of so I didn't. I, you, who thinks of that? But uh, right, you, it's always a surprise. That, like you, know, you, you think of anything goes in war, but it turns out there's a lot of rules and intelligence too. You know, it's like. Spying is a dirty game, and yet there are rules that you're not supposed to break. <laughs> it's sort of like everybody agrees to them until they don't. And, and in this case, it was definitely walking a gray area. It was like, okay, technically this is not okay, but we think we have a loophole so that if they catch us, we can say, hey. And also, the Russians had recovered a um, – during the Russian Revolution, an English submarine had sank off of uh, off of St. Petersburg, and the Russians had recovered it. So there was also that argument. It was like, hey, you did it. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so uh, I get that. Um, the, again, it's just it's um, it, when you think about it. In, in yeah, it's it's interesting. So enter the project or enter the operation to to once it's found to, to or enter the operation to to bring it up um, by the U.S. Navy, who said, well, not really by the U.S. Navy, but um, the, the U.S. Navy said you can't. It's where it was located, you couldn't do it, right? I mean, the U.S. Navy declared right. they said it was impossible. It's impossible. They basically, yeah, said it was impossible because 
uh, and this is something that at this time, actually even today, recovering a su- an entire submarine or, or most of a submarine was considered to be something you you just couldn't do. This thing weighed two million pounds. The, uh, in 1968, the deepest salvage of a submarine was 200 feet. This thing was 16,500 feet down. So wow. well, it was like orders of magnitude beyond anything that had been attempted. So from pretty much everyone's perspective, it was it was impossible. So the Navy thought, you know, they had they had these um very clever scientists in their sort of deep sea program who thought maybe we can use robots, we can go down and cut into it. Uh, but at the, the technology at the time, that just didn't seem like, you're talking very clunky robots and the control systems would have been really difficult. How can you imagine cutting into a sub and actually pulling out the cryptological machine, for instance? It was just al- almost impossible. The CIA said, maybe we can do it. Maybe we can get the whole thing. Now, they kind of said that without having figured out how they were going to do it, but you have to remember at that time, the CIA was a bunch of... They, it, there was a genius division there called the uh, Directorate of Science and Technology, and, and they had built the U-2 spy plane, the SR-71 Blackbird, the Corona, the first spy satellite. So over a string of 15 years, they had basically made the impossible possible. And when this came up, I think the confidence level there was, we can do it, sure, we don't know how yet, but we can do it. And the Pentagon <laughs> bought that. <laughs> I, I just and, and think of the think of the spirit behind that statement. Uh, we can do it, and, and uh, compare that, contrast that to perhaps today. Um, but that's another story. So so okay, um, <laughs> doing the impossible. It just takes a little bit longer, uh, I guess. Right. So okay, uh, enter Howard Hughes. Uh, I guess <laughs> is that uh, well. That's actually a step beyond the, fir- oh, the first. Okay. The first step, although you, what you just said reminds me of a quote. One of the uh, engineers for, for one of the contractors, iTech, who, who made some cameras for this mission, said they had a quote that went around at that time was, "The difficult we do today, the impossible is put off to tomorrow, or the impossible <laughs> we do tomorrow." I think it, basically that was the spirit of the time: was money is no object. You know, we can do anything we need to do because the stakes are winning, you know, avoiding nuclear apocalypse and winning the Cold War. Was, you know, the, the opponent was very clear. The objective was very clear. The stakes were as high as they could possibly be. Like, do you want the world to blow up? Do we want the United States of America to continue to exist? Then let's make it happen. And that, That's right. that was just an incredible spirit. And I think they were given access to the brightest minds in America. So when the CIA got the job, they sat around and formed this very secret think tank in Northern Virginia, separate from Langley. Only a few people were cleared into it. Extremely compartmentalized. And this is something they'd done with the U-2 and the Blackbird and Corona, too. And it became kind of the model for compartmentalized operations up to this day. And they sat around and just spitballed ideas. Like, well, how would you pick up a submarine? Do we, like, inflate balloons on it and float it up to the surface? Do we attach rocket boosters to it and shoot it up to the surface? And these are real ideas that were proposed, by the way. And all of those had major flaws. And those two, for example, were like, well, okay, that might work, but then how do you arrest the motion at the top of the, at the surface? Like, what's to stop the sub from, like, blasting up into the air? <laughs> <laughs> and then everybody's going to see it, too. They, they sort of agreed that um, you you had to just pick it up. You were going to do something called the grunt lift was the nickname they used for it. Now, they didn't exactly know how they were going to do that, but they envisioned kind of something would go down and grab it. So you would have a ship on the surface that would deploy a tool of some kind, 
and the, the, the image a lot of people like to say is like the, uh, the arcade game with the claw, you know, where you pick the teddy bear up. Oh, yeah. So we need to make, make, make like a real big version of that arcade game. With a three, I, three mile long arm, right? Uh, yeah, 17,000 foot steel right. cable. <laughs> okay. And, I, if I could just say, you're, you do a great job, by the way. Um, the book is uh, The Taking of K-129. It is a fascinating read. I've got to tell you, tell you folks, um, the, the, what a talented author this uh, this man is, uh, Josh Dean. Because I, I, this part of the book, I'm in my mind, and this is how my mind works. I'm, th- I'm thinking uh, in this room, a bunch of guys, coffee, smoke-filled room. You know, this is back, um, uh, we, you know. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, hey, Frank, you know, you open your big mouth. What are we going to do? I got to, uh, so you, you took me back into that era, and I think um, uh, as a writer that, you know, it's very talented. But, okay, now that I interrupted you, um, just to say that. Uh, <laughs> well, no, I think that's very much what it was like. And these were some of the smartest engineers and scientists around. And, and once they had decided that this was what we were going to do, they're like, okay, that'll work, but then – how do we do it? Yeah. No one's ever done this before. But what, you know, what they had done with U2 and Blackbird was you find a contractor who has expertise in that field. And that, you know, that had been Kelly Johnson and the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works for those projects. In this case, they went to a, a company called Global Marine, which was um, a, a relatively young, in, incredibly innovative deep sea drilling company. And they had just done this thing where they built a dynamically positioned boat that could sit still in, in relatively rough seas and drill a hole in the floor of the ocean, retract the pipe, and then put the drill bit back in the same hole, which is a very complicated engineering feat. But it was basically what they needed to do here. Because what you don't want to do, the ship on the surface needs to be pretty still, because when you've got a 17,000-foot steel um, cable under tension with 2 million pounds on the bottom, if that thing breaks... It was equated to like a small nuclear reaction, basically. Like that pipe would shoot up to the surface and basically blow the the ship on the surface in half. Everybody on board would die. So you need to keep the ship really still, and this is a pretty complicated thing. And Global Marine had figured out how to do it. So the CIA sends a couple guys out to L.A. They literally show up unannounced in the uh, office of the head engineer. I mean, basically just said, "Hey, uh, we need to see him." <laughs> and, he, and he's in a, and he's in a meeting, and he tells his secretary like. I can't. I'm in a meeting. And she's like, uh, they're not leaving. <laughs> <laughs> and they're in suits and they won't tell me who they are. And, you know, he's kind of amused and he, he dismisses his, his uh, staff and they come in. And, um, this man named John Parangoski who led the mission and he had also led Blackbird and he led Corona and he, he's a legend in CIA circles now. He, he comes in and presents the scenario and says, in theory, could you pick up something off the bottom of the ocean that weighs, you know, about 2 million pounds and it's about 100 feet, I can't remember the exact dimensions, 100 feet long and he's not cleared in the program so we can't actually tell him exactly what he's doing but he, you know, gives him the, the challenge and the, and the guy's like ah, let me think about it maybe, it doesn't seem impossible uh, and he thought about it for a day and he's like, yeah I actually think we could and he's like, okay well, we'll get you cleared in and his job was go get this submarine and, and then it became a project the global marine designed the ship um the hughes glomar explorer very famous now lockheed martin built the claw the thing that was going to pick the submarine up and um 
Hughes tool beat, built the uh, steel cable. Um, and, and you mentioned Howard Hughes earlier. So the third part of this is that you, you found the sub, you, you come up with a method, but then you need to explain it because let's say you take a giant ship out into the middle of the Pacific into an area where no one is operating such a, a craft normally. It's going to look a little suspicious. So what the CIA always had to do was come up with covers, and they still do this today. You have to explain it to the world um, in a way that makes sense. And they decided, what if we say we're mining the ocean? We're going to go down and get these manganese nodules that have rare earth minerals. And, and that wasn't a insane idea. It was something that had been suggested. Like, we know they're there. Someday somebody will figure out how to get them. Well, there happened to be this guy named Howard Hughes, who was eccentric, rich, maverick, didn't care what people think, had a history of working with the CIA, was a great patriot. Um, they put kind of all these pieces together and said, what if we tell the world Howard Hughes is mining the ocean? He's building the ship. He's going to go out there. And that's what they did. They convinced everybody, including the Soviet Union, that Howard Hughes was going mining, and really the CIA was stealing a sub. Isn't that... Uh, yeah. And, and Well, th- how long did that story... Ex- uh, uh, what's my question, I guess? Help me out here. How long did that story, how long did that cover story last? Uh, this is the amazing thing about, you know, and we'll get to the success or not success of the mission, whether it would actually worked or not, but I would say, unquestionably, this story is a, a, one of the great successes for the CIA because for four years, this held up. Wow. And you can imagine how many people would be cleared into something like this. Cause you, you know, it was built, the ship was built at a shipyard in Philadelphia. You know, the claw was built in Redwood City, south of San Francisco. There was a submersible barge that was a critical part of the system that was built in San Diego and designed in Seattle. And all of these things are big and hundreds of people touch them in some way. Not all those people are cleared, but a lot of them are. Um, so for four years, none of these people talked and, Everybody believed the story. I mean, I have stacks of clips from 71, 72, 73, every major newspaper, every magazine around the world did stories about Howard Hughes' mining mission, that Howard Hughes was doing this crazy thing. And he actually started, they started an industry because competitors said like, whoa, Howard Hughes is doing this. Should we be doing it? And all these other prototype ocean miners started up. And, and, and the CIA is so good at this stuff. Um, they had a team of people who were basically, I mean, they were actors. They were real scientists, but their job was to pretend that they were mining, and they would go to conferences, and they would write academic papers, and they would give interviews, and they went out there and basically created this illusion that was essentially bulletproof so that a lot of people weren't questioning. And then all the guys who were cleared into it, including, you know, roughnecks and who had to work on the ship, nobody ever talked. I think what happened, you know, I talked to one of my main sources was the, the one of the great security officers in the Cold War, the CIA, and he ran the cover story for for the agency. And he said, you know, he when he when he started on the U two program, he asked for embossed stationery with the um, bald eagle and and the American flag, and, and he he would take it, and that's what they would put the clearance form on, and he would put this in front of people, and it, it said, you know you're going to sign this and we're going to clear you and we're going to give you information. And then if you ever reveal this information, you're putting the national security at risk, you will be locked up for the rest of your life, blah, blah, blah. And, and he said putting that, you know, the embossed Eagle on there was just such a powerful symbol to people. And, and that these guys would sign that thing and it really meant everything. And it was like, 
we will take this information to the grave if necessary. And I talked to many people who didn't even tell their wives. You know, they, they wives thought they were mining. That's pretty amazing. It is, it is amazing. You talk about how, uh, the, uh, the, the ship was harassed during its mission, but the cover story held up. How close did Russia or others come to uncovering this as the CIA was, was conducting this covert operation? You know, it depends who you believe. In hindsight, people are really smart in hindsight. Right? There's one, there's one intelligence officer from the Soviet Pacific Fleet who claims that he was jumping up and down, screaming that, like, this is not really a mining ship. And maybe that's right. And, and if that is right, it just proves that the cover story was so airtight because, you know, as he tells it, he went up the chain of command and people are like, yeah, 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 you're wrong. That's a, that's a mining ship. And, you know, you, yeah, you reference these, like, harassing vessels. Two different Soviet ships, um, were detoured to the site to check it out. And one of them acted very aggressively and circled it for days and, you know, dispatched a helicopter to fly over and take pictures and, uh, the NSA was listening to the traffic as they always do, and they were able to intercept communications from that ship back to the fleet. And essentially, what what they said was, "This checks out. This looks like a mining ship. We really think it, it is what they're saying." So, not only did it hold up in the construction and design and, and the deployment of the mission, it held up during the mission when the Soviets were right there. And really, the only way you know, there's two ways they could have probably foiled it. If if they had boarded the ship, if they decided that, that they were suspicious enough to do something that aggressive. Then, then they would have seen this big empty hole in the middle of the ship, and they would have seen this pipe going down, and you know the CIA control room. Uh, the other way was had they dispatched divers into the water and gone underneath and seen that there was these. Because I did what I did. I didn't explain earlier. The bottom of the ship had these two doors that opened up, so that the the mining, what they called the mining machine, which was actually the claw could go out through the bottom without anybody seeing it. And then when it came up, it could pull the submarine into the belly of the ship without anyone seeing it. Another of the amazing design uh, concepts. So I guess if you'd sent divers in, but that's really risky in the open ocean. Like, nobody's going to do that unless you have a really good reason to suspect. And they just didn't. It seems like they didn't. I I, I like this book uh, a a whole lot, The Taking of K-129. If you haven't read it and you're a student of history, or if you, if you just want to read something really absolutely engaging, this is the book, uh, The Taking of the 120, or The Taking of K-129. Josh Dean is the author. He's our guest. Many thanks to Bill McIntosh of Casa Media. And I, but I, I want to kind of go back to the very, very beginning. I could just have one question to ask you. Out of all of the topics, it, it, you're a magazine writer, a self-described magazine writer, asker of questions. Out of all the topics that you, you could have written on, uh, what made you choose this one? And that's kind of a softball fun question, but I, I just in reading the book I had I was thinking why this? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's one of those things that I was I've been peripherally aware of for a long time but, but I realized it was just almost like a legend to me it was like this thing wasn't there that CIA operation where Howard Hughes pretended to mine the ocean? And it was like basically the, the what's the the um, subtitle of the book is how the CIA used Howard Hughes to steal a Russian sub in the most daring covert operation in history. It was like I had that in my head somehow, but I was just curious one day to see what I really knew about it, and I started reading, you know, some of the stuff that was out there, and I realized like this is an even crazier story than I thought, and. 
I feel like the, the definitive account hasn't been done and I would start talking to people about it and I would realize, you know, to, uh, under a certain age, certainly under 40, they had no awareness at all. And then there was, you know, people 40s, 50s had some kind of like a little bit of awareness. Anyone in 50s, 60s and up who was into military and intel certainly knew about it, but often when I would ask questions like, well, how well do you know about it? Or like, I found out that, you know, it, it was, a legendary story that was like pretty shallowly understood and it just seemed like who wouldn't want to hear about this <laughs> and, amen uh, and it, yeah it, it's a fascinating account and, and your writing style makes it even better uh, again you can go to our uh, uh, description in the description is a link to Josh Dean's website and of course from there you can get it to get the book on Amazon or a number of different venues alright um, the role just to be clear though the role that Howard Hughes played in this um, what was you, is it should we go here now or, or yeah sure okay yeah. so what was the role that Howard Hughes played exactly uh, Hughes personally yeah it's it's unclear um, obviously he was aware of it I mean, he was running his various companies. Um, and this began, Hughes Tool was the company that originally signed the contract with the CIA. In the middle of that project, the, the company name changed to Summa Corporation, but it was still the same people. Hughes at this time was holed up in the top of the desert inn. You know, we're thinking, this is like, you know, Leo wearing a diaper with the blinds closed, Howard Hughes. So it was not his proudest period. It was toward the end. I don't think that meant that he wasn't in control of things. He was certainly aware and would have had to agree to it. Now, he was certainly not involved on a day-to-day basis, but his companies at that time were run by a group of, of individuals who were nicknamed the Mormon Mafia. It was four or five kind of key lieutenants um, who he trusted deeply, and they were the day-to-day contacts for the CIA. Um, one of them named Paul Reeve was put in charge of um, what they called the Deep Ocean Mining Project. He was essentially the front for the cover story. He's the guy that did all the interviews, and he went to the conferences. And um, Chester Davis, his lawyer, um, Bill Gay, Nadine Henley. Uh, it was it was really four or five people he trusted you know, as much as he could. Um, so he was aware. I don't think he was ever going to meetings. I heard a, you know, it's almost like the stuff of legend again. I would ask people, did you ever see him? No one ever saw him. There were a couple of meetings where they would say, you know, one of his people would ask a bunch of questions and then leave the room and come back with answers as if he was either on the other side of the wall or maybe there was a telephone they were going to. But it's sort of like the story's become a legend. Everything pertaining to Howard Hughes has kind of turned into a legend, especially in those times. He was like, you know, he was such a mysterious, eccentric figure. And toward the end, he was just getting crazy. Josh, how did the not only the CIA keep this operation secret from um, the other uh, from Russia from the Soviets, but from the media also? I don't know about how the media and the CIA's working relationship was back then. I know today it'd be much easier for them to uh, have the mainstream media push a narrative that they desired, but uh, with the media back then. How were they able to keep the media out of the trail? Well, I think the most important thing they did was create a believable story so that the media kind of went on, it ran off on its own. And I think when you have a guy like Howard Hughes, I mean, I keep telling people, I think Elon Musk is maybe the only comparable figure today where you could say 
everything that guy does is so big and, and um, audacious and he's, his ego is big and he seems like he doesn't care what people think of him. Hughes was very much that. So everything he did was believable and, and his reputation was that he was in kind of defiance of you know common sense and certainly didn't care about cost. So I think when you had a guy like that posing as the front for the story, the media just kind of chased that rabbit. You know, it was like, and then the kind of technical science media was so geeked out on the, oh my God, they're going to mine the ocean. No one's ever done that before. It would be kind of be, you know, I, I think the equivalent would be if Elon Musk said he's going to mine an asteroid because that's an idea that's been suggested before. And let's say the CIA had some like space program, you know, they they were trying to get a rocket up to for whatever reason. That's the analog. So. You can imagine that everybody would want to be writing about Elon Musk's asteroid mining mission. And meanwhile, the CIA uses that like cloud and, and hides behind it and operates. Now, kind of a force it, multiplier, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I, I'm exactly, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. But, but, you know, you ask an interesting question because there was a time, um, when it started to leak and, and Seymour Hirsch, famous for the My Lai story, but also um, he was involved in a, a lot of the um, CIA family jewel stories. He was doggedly after the CIA at this time. Somebody leaked it to him in, I think, 73. Not a lot of information, but a little bit, that the CIA may be after the sub and that there's probably some operation happening. And he went to one of his sources, and that got back to the uh, DCI, the CIA director, uh, Bill Colby, at that time. And Colby was a um, well-respected, very methodical. He had been OSS. He was really smart. Um, he went to Hirsch and basically confronted him and said, I know that you know something. I'm asking you to sit on that because it's really important and national security is at stake. And I promise you that when the time comes, I'll give you everything you need on it. But right now you need to not do it. And maybe I can help you out with some other stories because I know what you really want is like, you know, for instance, at that time the CIA was spying on anti-war protesters in violation of its charter. This became a right. big controversy. That's really the story Hirsch wanted. So I think he was willing to trade. Okay. I, I don't really have enough to go with anyway. I can't run a story about a rumor that I heard at a party, but you know, if you're willing to give me, some other stuff, I'll sit on it. I'm sure this kind of horse trading is going on on a daily basis today with all the agencies, um, but it worked. And, and that actually uh, squashed the only leak for quite some time. Now, in in 74, after the mission, uh, if you want to jump ahead a little bit, um, it leaked in a much more um, widespread fashion. The LA Times um, actually got a hold of some better information and ran a story that surprised the CIA. Now, this is before the Internet. Um, that story ran on A1. It had a bunch of information wrong, but it reported the broad strokes of the story. Basically, the CIA went out earlier this year, tried to steal the submarine, um, and we know that it happened. They had the ocean wrong. They had a lot of stuff wrong, basically. But the kind of broad strokes... And because it was before the internet, um, the CIA took a gamble, and they they remembered this case where during World War II, I can't remember exactly the story, but something had come out that would have been very damaging to the war in the Pacific, and and they assumed that maybe the Japanese didn't see it, and they were able to kill it, and it didn't run in the next day's editions, and in fact, no one ever found out. So they CIA immediately sent people out to L.A. Times, talked to the publisher, and said, "Hey, can you kill the story? Here's why." This is very dangerous. You could start a war. We're going to go back out there again. 
again, we'll give you the information when the time comes. But and they kind of appealed to their patriotism, and, and it, it worked. The LA Times agreed to do that. Um, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Parade, numerous parties all signed on and said, okay, as long as you promise that if this is going to come out, you call us and give us the green light and you give us real information. But for now, we'll sit on it. Hmm. Boy, contrast that to today, as, as you had indicated. Um, I wonder. I, I, right. I don't know. It's just yeah, okay. There's so many things you wonder today. If, I don't think any of it would work today, but you, you certainly can't imagine that any of that would happen. I, I don't know. I, it, it, yeah, not in at least not in. The, and, and that's why I, I like to. Um, I'm a really big. Uh, in the, I'm big on history, and, and especially this era, uh, really from from post World War II to the present, uh, how things played out. And you really touch on that 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 specific time period in such a way that it really makes this a very compelling read. Um, we we have about my goodness, we only have about nine minutes left of the of the show. Um, we're talking with Josh Dean, by the way, his uh, book, The Taking of K One Twenty Nine. It's such a great book. You can go to his website, go to Amazon. Uh, Josh, in, in the remaining nine minutes or so we've got left, and you've been very gracious with your time. T- take us wherever you think we should go with this. Our audience, um, very interested in this. Where do you want to go from here? Well, I, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, one thing. I, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I just don't want to leave anything out. Um, yeah, I want to make sure we get everything possible in in this hour. So go. So go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say that you know you mentioned this period, and we I mean we've touched on it in a couple different ways where it was it was you know it was so clear who the enemy was. We were we were so united as a um, you know military and intelligence community, and everybody kind of understood that we do what it takes to nullify the Soviet threat. And incredible things happened. And I think that you know one of the um, kind of secondary stories of this book or what I wanted to come out of it was was an appreciation for this this group at the CIA, the Directorate of Science and Technology. And I think that when people think of the CIA and, and engineering, they kind of think of like Q from James Bond, like exploding pens and little, you know, cameras that you can put in a button of your shirt. And, you know, they don't think of people who make ships and planes and satellites. But in fact, during the Cold War, you can make a very compelling case that a group of, you know, I'm going to call them nerds in a charming way, you know, smart, very smart engineers and scientists won the Cold War because we were getting badly outspied by the Soviets. And that's that's not a knock on our spies. It's like we're a free and open democracy. They can do whatever they want here. They can come here and, and, and basically infiltrate our communities in a number of ways. Contrast that to the Soviet Union in the 60s and 70s when any American who shows up there is going to be trailed 24 hours a day. It's very hard to turn them because if they get caught, they're executed on the spot. Um, and what, what we decided was we're going to have to find a way around that. And, and maybe we can use innovation and a smart. And this is a country that's built on um, doing amazing things and, and has been leading in every industry. And that's what they did. They built planes and satellites and boats. And, and that actually provided the confidence that we were um, at least as good, if not better in every way, that we would win a war if it broke out. That was not the way people felt. When Eisenhower, um, I believe it was Eisenhower, agreed to let Kelly Johnson build the U-2, it was because he was terrified that the Russians had this huge bomber fleet and they could wipe us out. 
and the tensions were very high and you know some think tanks predicted war in 1958 I think it was you know like it was very uncertain that we could win and and what these guys did is they 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 fixed that and in the process um forced the soviets to to spend tons of money to keep up with us like when the U2 was flying over Russia taking pictures they were like shooting everything they could at it they were like flying migs up at it and the migs were like you know blowing up because they couldn't go any higher they were like spending every all kinds of sums and this happened under the water with submarines this happened with satellites this happened with the space program so I think you know this group of guys um, at the director of science and technology are sort of some of the unsung heroes of the Cold War and um, I wanted it to, to really make that clear it's why I spent some chapters on that and on those planes and um, I don't think a lot of people know that, uh, and, and and I hope that they they do now. Um, so that's that's certainly one thing that, that that's a book, that's a good uh, good points all. Okay, uh, you're you're going to say something else. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say you know when you when you say the book, I think it's four over four hundred forty eight pages, and my editor at one point was like, "Are you sure you don't want to cut a little bit?" You know, the <laughs> things that I considered cutting were. There's some sections in the front that are about that. I devoted a couple chapters to the U2 and the SR-71 and then the Corona because I felt like you needed some context to understand why. Like, you know, if I just say to you, the CIA went out and tried to steal a submarine using a giant boat, and you didn't know anything about it, you'd be like, "That's weird. Why wouldn't the Navy do that?" You know, <laughs> right? And, and it, thanks for not cutting it. it because it was a it was a quick not a quick read, but um, despite its length, it, it, there's it was it's it flowed very smoothly um and i'm waiting for the movie to come out but um yeah it, you captured the essence of the of the era and i think that's so important yeah thank you that's what you know i i, I hope that, and i've heard from some people who who worked on those missions that that they they're happy that that's all in there um it was a you know it was an incredible time and i think young people Certainly, you know, millennials who weren't around during that time have no idea what, what how perilous things were. I mean, it was really not unrealistic that we could go to war, and we almost did a few times. So the fact that there were guys who used technology to um, help save us, it's also it's kind of a very American story, you know. It's ingenuity and audacity and, and you know, doing whatever it takes. And, Indeed, uh, yeah. Now, um, I, I know. Well, I, I think it's pretty well documented as to what the results of the expedition were. Um, you, yep. you, you do you want to just reference sure. that? Well, yeah. It's you know, it's, was it a complete success? It was not. So um, everything worked. This this complicated system uh, system of engineering that was a ship and a claw and a and a, and a pipe and um, all these like very primitive computers. Uh, it had to work the first time because there was no time to test it. And and I think they gave themselves about a 50% chance. So you can imagine they spent somewhere between a half billion and a billion dollars on this, and they only gave themselves a 50% chance. I mean, think about that. It's sort of like there's a very good chance it wasn't going to work, and that yet they still went ahead with it. Well, it did work, and they picked the submarine up, and they were pulling it up from the bottom, got about 5,000 feet up, so a third of the way, and one of the fingers on the claws broke. So it was not a mechanical flaw. The engineering worked perfectly. It was a failure in the steel. Of all things, it was a failure in the steel. One of these fingers breaks. 
a large chunk of the submarine, but not all of it falls back. So they end up getting about a third of what they wanted, but they didn't get the missiles. They didn't get the crypto. They got two nuclear tip torpedoes, something we weren't aware that they had. Um, they got, you know, the Navy, um, intel people that I've interviewed said they got a wealth of, um, knowledge from the submarine parts that they got in, into construction. And, and we realized that we were way ahead of them, that the, the, the sub was kind of primitive and that there were a lot of things we were surprised about. Um, but we didn't get the key things, the targets. And, um, you know, here's where the media comes back in because that was a huge disappointment and a failure, but they were confident they could go back and do it again. The, the cover story had held up and, and they were going to go back. Project Azorian was closed and something called Project Matador was commenced and that was let's fix the claw and let's go back. And that was, that was all happening when one journalist, a, a radio reporter named Jack Anderson, um, decided not to listen to the uh, director Colby. And he went ahead and announced to the world on his radio show that the CIA had gone after the sub and he gave yep. a lot of details and that was the end of it. You know, at that yep. point it was too late because, you know, when Colby had told all those other reporters, I promise you, if this is going to come out, I'll give you permission to print. So when he heard about that, he had to call the Times and the Post and parade and say, you know what, Jack Anderson's going to talk about it. You go right ahead. So the next day, it was everywhere, and it blew up. Yeah, and I remember that time. I guess that kind of dates me a little bit, but I, I do remember Anderson in that, that whole time period. And you really uh, evoked a lot of memories. Um for, for the way, again, the way you wrote your book. Uh, Josh Dean, author of The Taking of K-129. Man, I'll tell you, a fantastic book. Uh, I, I do hope, uh, in the future you'd come back, um, to just, just to talk about current events and, and other issues. You're a talented author, you're a talented writer, and certainly the questions you do ask are of interest to everyone and, or should be. So, congratulations, by the way, on a great book. Thank you. Right. I, I, I like talking about it. Well, hey, thanks for your gift of time. And, uh, again, uh, uh, you're a very gracious man, talented writer, and we hope to have you back again at some future point if you agree to come back. I'd love to do it. All right, sir. All right. Well, thank that, you. Thank you, sir. That was Josh Dean. And I mean that, a very talented author. And somebody sent me an email saying, how do you read all the books? Well, you know, God did give me a good gift. And uh, I do a, a couple of things, only a couple of things really well. Uh, one is read. No, I can't speak that well, which no, you is do, kind of you ironic. Do read a lot. Yeah, I'm always reading. Uh, but, but the the time period that uh, and it's so important to to what we're seeing today. And if you think about this, what does this have to do with uh, current events? Well, you start understanding things like the KGB, and you start understanding the time period that uh, John Dean. Uh, Josh Dean uh, talks about John Dean um, thinking of Watergate, and you get a good idea of the landscape that and how we got to where we are today. And I think you'll have a better understanding of why and how we are where we're at today. So, having said that, we are our thanks go out to all of our guests, and especially Laura Loomer from uh, yeah, the that first segment. That was really great. Oh. Uh, you know, she's been doing a great job on the Las Vegas investigation getting uh, evidence that shows that the police are inaccurate in what they're reporting getting evidence uh, vid- extra video evidence that would not or otherwise had not been released raising more questions and she did a fantastic job 
coming on the show and we got to support her and more people like her uh who can be investigative journalists she made the point that you know just herself her social media account uh and her cell phone and some su- support from people out there uh, made it possible for her to go to Las Vegas and you know do the legwork ask the questions that the media refused to ask and she really gave us the inside scoop of what's been going on there since the uh, tragic events happened on October 1st in the last minute of the show I want to uh, go over this just real quick JFK files released by CIA ending wait of half a century but some sensitive information being withheld on Drudge there's a link to a live updated article from the London Telegraph that is putting out little snippets and tidbits of interesting things that they find in the release of the uh, John F. Kennedy CIA papers. And one of the interesting things that I saw that came out was that the uh, the FBI or the, the CIA uh, had observed and had recordings of somebody who was representing themselves as Lee Harvey Oswald in Mexico City calling a uh, embassy in Moscow. But the paper goes on to state that when the person was observed, it was not Lee Harvey Oswald, even though he was representing himself to be so. And that's just one little interesting tidbit of information that I found coming out of the documents. But as you said earlier, Dad, they're not going to release unredacted info that is of any relevance to the investigation. I mean, we're not going to get the answer of of who killed JFK from the. Well, I don't think the answer would be contained within the documents themselves, anyway. And if it, if it, even if it, you know, here, look here, that this is where, even if that was the case, they would redact that anyway. But uh, Trump apparently does bow to the pressure of this of the. um, Yeah. What's uh, up with that? Yeah. Well, it is what it is. There it is. I mean. Enough said, I guess. Now we know. Also, Fusion GPS is... uh, uh, The Wall Street Journal is reporting the coming Russian bombshells Fusion GPS house... Uh, to give House investigators its bank records. So that's pretty interesting. And, And there it is. Follow the money... And I think we all know where that leads. Folks, I want to thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks for your belief and trust in us. I want to thank everyone who uh, tuned in tonight. Thank our guests, uh, from Amy Knight to Laura Loomer to Josh Dean. And, of course, thanks thanks for making this uh, just a, a wonderful, uh, just a wonderful program a great family of listeners and viewers and we really appreciate it don't forget tune in to my show 9 to 10 tomorrow morning uh, on blog talk radio and, and global star radio network and 2 to 3 joe and john you know, we'll do it first. Have a great day.